Anna LeBaron, thank you for coming in. Thank you for having me. All right, so you have a real crazy childhood. <laughs> That's like putting it really lightly. Yeah. So you grew up in a Mormon household, but they took not like modern day Mormonism. It's like the original Gold Scrolls Mormonism. What's the guy's name? Jo- Joseph Smith. Yeah, Joseph Smith. It's like his original stuff, right? Right. And it was taken to an extreme, I'm guessing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I guess, uh, you know, when I read your book, it was something like your your father had over 50 children, was a murderer, and had 11 wives. Is that right? 13 wives. And 13 wives. <laughs> Too off. He fathered 51 children. There were about 13 to 15 additional stepchildren that were brought into the um, into the family through marriage. So it was quite a quite a number of people. So tell me first your first thoughts, you know, maybe from 5 years old on. Like what are some of the first things you ran into that were that were pretty crazy? I didn't run into a lot of crazy at first, and I didn't even know I was in a cult. So we grew up just having lots of siblings around playing um, we were not allowed to play outdoors very often just because my dad was wanted by the law. And when you had so many people living in one house, usually multiple wives shared a regular one family house. And then there would be 20 some odd children in the home, several wives, other people that came and went. It was very chaotic. And so we had to make up games, play games, card games, board games. If they let us play outside, it was in the backyard as long as the house was fenced where people couldn't see how many kids were in the backyard? So were were people always pregnant? Yes, like with, of yeah. course. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, I mean was, was like was there like eight pregnant people at a time? Like, there, I, mean, I don't know what the what the record number <laughs> is. Um, that's never been asked of, of me, so <laughs> I've never done that research. But yeah, there was there was babies being born all the time, and just that my earliest memories are playing a lot with my siblings because okay. that was that was our social life because yeah. we weren't allowed to make friends with And anyone. were you on a farm or a ranch or No, a lot of people when they imagine polygamy they think about like modern day Warren Jeffs who had a compound and with bars and gates and you know all that. That wasn't the kind of group that my father had because he had a spread out all over the southwest United States and Mexico. <laughs> And we, our family operated, um, used appliance businesses to support the endeavors of the cult. And the kids were slave labor, so in those appliance businesses. So we had uh, people strung all over from, you know, California, Arizona, Cal- Colorado, and then all over Texas as well, and then Mexico. And so there was a lot of back and forth, a lot of moving around, a lot of moving pieces and moving parts as my father and the people who were also wanted um, moved around from city to city, back and forth, um, trying to stay ahead of the law. So those are my earliest memories was lots of games and playing with my siblings until you were old enough to be put to work. And then lots of moving around, mostly in the middle of the night, without any warning or any notice, no packing, just get in the back of the truck or the station wagon and and move and go, leaving so everything is, behind. How was he able to operate a business if he was always having to move? Like, Was the business always getting shut down or reopened, or how did that work? There were people in the cult who um, had not committed crimes, 
So they weren't wanted. So they could rent houses and, uh, you know, rent commercial property to start the business on. So those people who, who weren't wanted um, would go and do all that. And then the other people that were wanted didn't do that because that meant the <laughs> police could find them and they would leave traces of them. And so... Um, okay, how big was the cult? How many people are we talking? Hundreds, probably close to a thousand, but all spread out. Okay. My dad had 50 children just by himself. And then there were everybody else. <laughs> and with was your dad considered a leader in the church? Yeah, he was the leader of the one that he started. But it didn't start with him. It my uh, my family of origin goes all the way back to Joseph Smith. Um, um, my f- great great something grandfather is a man named Benjamin F. Johnson, who was the spiritually adopted son of Joseph Smith. And so I'm a first generation non polygamist. <laughs> what? <laughs> okay, so uh, take me. <laughs> I told you it was crazy. <laughs> so so. It's just funny that it's like in 2020 and you're the first generation. I'm a first, like, okay. <laughs> for sure. So is there a certain age that everybody gets married off at? And is there, uh, I'm guessing this is how it's worked in other cults. So when I say this stuff, it's me just assuming that it's mm-hmm. it's like some of these other cults. And in the sense of uh, you become a church leader and once you're a church leader, then you get to like pick who your next brides are going to be. And they're typically like 12 to 16 when they, like, how does that work? In our cult, in our family, it was right around the age of 14 when when a girl would be like already have been groomed to accept that my father would choose their husband for them. And the way that that was chosen was the the person or the man who happened to be in my father's good graces when that when you were of age, um, that's how he decided. So his daughters would be um, used as pawns and as motivation and promised to different men along the way. I was promised to people when I was, starting when I was nine years old, and these men would talk to me about that, that I was promised to them. And then later you find out there's a letter in which my dad promised me to another man so it was just however it was convenient for him and whatever served his purposes and so we weren't just beloved daughters of his that he was choosing a mate for you know no it was whatever served him so what was his end goal like (laughs) i don't know how to read what like what was he trying to like what do you accomplish in like are they just trying to get to heaven? Like, I mean, like, is that how they justify it? Like, what is their end goal of why they, like, cause it seems like pretty miserable just to live on the run. And like, to me, it sounds like I have an amazing wife who I love dearly, but to have more than one wife sounds like I was like, Oh, how could somebody manage this? Why would somebody even sign up for that? Yeah. It's, it's, um, it's something that when you are born and raised in the LDS faith. And so I want to be really clear to your listeners before we go any further, that the modern-day Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, that's what they want to be called, so I do that out of respect for them. Um, They don't practice polygamy anymore, but their ancestors did, and there was a point in which the, um, the church disavowed polygamy, and 
people that continued believing what Joseph Smith taught from the beginning uh, separated themselves, and they became known as fundamentalist Mormons. They're the ones who practiced polygamy down through the generations that I'm part of. Now, uh, to my understanding, like black people were not allowed in the Mormon faith until like 1985. It was the in the in the mid 70s. Okay, is so would that mean that your fundamentals still wouldn't allow? <laughs> like, was was that a split too? That it they was, just it was a very racist religion. Yeah. Until until the modern day church um, began uh, changing their belief system because it didn't um, mesh well with society, and so they had revelations based on the pushback they were getting from the government, from just normal <laughs> n- normal society. Did you love they magically have rev- revelations? <laughs> well, that is exactly how it works. Yeah. And, I mean, they used to be saying, you know, they had the whole campaign, you know, I am Mormon. And then there was another revelation, and it's, no, we're no longer Mormons. We don't call ourselves Mormons anymore. We're now the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So it's... It's a thing that is very fluid, and as time goes on, they become more and more um, uh, socially acceptable. And, and there was a time when Joseph Smith started the religion that Joseph Smith said he had to start this new religion because every other religion, every other Christian denomination on earth was an abomination in the sight of God. And so now the Mormons are saying, we're Christian, I mean, Joseph Smith would roll over in his grave <laughs> if he knew that Mormons were saying we're Christian now because that's not how it started. And so most people, though, and even people that consider themselves part of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, don't know their history. They don't know all these darker elements of their church history, but the Internet is making it possible for people to find these things out and then come to different decisions if that's what they want to do about their faith practices. Yeah. It's really interesting. I was on a podcast uh, with a guy who I didn't know was Mormon. (laughs) And I was like, well, uh, you know, I don't believe I'll, you know, like, like Mormons believe they'll get their own planet and they'll be their own God. And I was like, I just believe there's one true God. And uh, he's like, that's not what Mormons believe. I thought that was really, I was like, oh my gosh. Like, you know, it hit me like, oh my gosh, I'm interviewing him. You know, I had no clue. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I was like, see, you're going to do the sales pitch where you're going to pretend like it's the same as Christianity. And then the deeper I get into it, then I'm going to find out. I was like, but the truth is that you believe that like your sanctification process leads to you eventually being your own God. Right. And then they also continue to believe that, that polygamy will be practiced in the afterlife. And that is a source of a lot of distress for a lot of women who identify as Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It's a lot of distress knowing that in the afterlife, there's this thing that awaits them that is just horrifying. Like there's been no example of this lifestyle here on earth or even in biblically, because <laughs> there's people in the Bible that practice polygamy. Not one single example, biblically speaking, or modern day, where good came from those things. Yeah. The children, yes, of course. I, I am a product of polygamy. <laughs> yeah. I'm a good person. It's not the children that are born into it that are the problem. It's the lifestyle that's the problem. Yeah. Okay, so so start, you know, 
things are normal because you don't know you're in a cult. Right. <laughs> oh, cool. I got a big family, you know, and like probably, you know, it's safe to say you were homeschooled, right? <laughs> well, we um, sometimes we would be in, enrolled in school because it was free childcare. Everybody was put to work. Once you were old enough, you would be pulled out of school. But when you're younger, the public school system was free childcare and free meals too. I, I remember vividly thinking that public school meals lunchtime was the best <laughs> because we were raised in abject poverty. Yeah, There was no way for one man to support so many wives and children. So the wives would go on welfare, but because some of the wives weren't um, American citizens, all of that had, once it came in, it had to be shared among all these others. So one woman's welfare was feeding 20 children. There was never enough, never enough. So we had to dumpster dive for food behind the grocery stores. I've talked about that in my book, the, the experience of it as a nine, 10 year old girl, dumpster diving for food in the back of the grocery store and being excited to find, you know, melted strawberry ice cream, you know, just, yeah. we, that was our, that supplemented our diet because the welfare that we received, you know, back then it was, you'd go to this place and they would give you all these canned and boxed foods that, you know, you mix with water and it's all gross, <laughs> you know, <laughs> the milk is powdered milk and oh my gosh, it was disgusting. And then my mom would water it down even further to make it stretch further, which was just basically colored water. Yeah. <laughs> <Ugh>. <laughs> so it was just a, a life of abject poverty. And so a school lunch that, you know, most kids today are like, school lunches. <laughs> it's Mom, all about, your, it's about all about your upbringing. <clears throat> yes. And it, for us, that was a treat. Um, when we would get whole milk at, with our lunch, that was like, oh my gosh, this is the best, which made me hate the powdered milk even more. The one time I got in trouble at school, the one time I got in trouble at school was because a student next to me was going to throw away their unopened carton of milk and you weren't allowed to trade food. You had to just eat what was in front of you. And in my head, it was just such <laughs> a, um, uh, I can't even believe that she's not going to drink that golden <laughs> liquid, you know, that's in front of her. So were you, <clears throat> were you trained when you're at school, were you trained like, Hey, you never mentioned that you have nine moms. Like, <laughs> yeah, no, we, we would, uh, we were trained. There was 13 of them. Sorry. So, <laughs> <clears throat> so they were trained to, um, to call our, the other sister wives of my mother's sister wives. We were trained to call them our aunts and the other children that were our half siblings. We were trained to call them our cousins. And even my father, we couldn't refer to him as our dad. We had to call him Tio, which was Spanish for uncle. Okay. Now, how often would you see your dad, like, or spend time with your dad? Was that a thing? I, I didn't. That was that was it. Um, he was in hiding. Um, the The first time he had somebody killed, um, I was three years old. So I don't have any recollection of time before we were on the run. And so... Um, I didn't spend time with him. If he came to the house, which was not very often, he would come and go in the middle of the night. They would sequester him in a bedroom. We wouldn't be allowed to go there. We, would, we wouldn't even be aware that he was there, except that um, 
different foods would be cooked. Steaks and potatoes that, you know, fried potatoes. We didn't get. We had to eat beans and rice and whatever welfare we could gather and dumpster-dived food. He got special foods. And so that was, we didn't know at the time that the special food was being cooked and taken into the room because our father was in there. So how does... How do none of these sister wives just all like, so immediately I'm thinking about my, and I'm like, okay, let's say I marry five women. (laughs) I'm like, the second I leave, they're going to get together and be like, you know what? This is really like, we're done with this. And then they're all going to leave. Like, how do they all band together? Tell me, is it just because they're, they're born into it and it's, it's all they ever know. Some of them are born into it and that's all they ever know. Yes. Some of them are raised LDS, the modern day Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And that's where my father got most of his converts from. Because people that are raised and born into that religion were ripe for the picking. Like they, the the Mormon church, the modern day church wasn't teaching what Joseph Smith revealed and wrote about and all their sacred texts. You know, the church, the the Doctrine and Covenants, the Pearl of Great Price, the Book of Mormon, all of their sacred texts um, said you have to live polygamy in order to reach the celestial level when you go to heaven. And the celestial level is where you become a god, and you have all your wives, and then you populate your own planet. So if you're raised in that faith, when my father, who knew their sacred texts better than them, could show them very plainly this is what Joseph Smith taught us to do. And this church, the modern day church, has apostatized and is not living the way Joseph Smith revealed and taught. And because it's there in black and white, people would could be converted very easily. That's how my mom was converted. What was your what was his motivation for wanting more wives? Well, you you had to live polygamy in order to attain the celestial level. So it was a requirement. So it's you always had to be adding. So it's like if you have nine, you have to be searching for a tenth? I think there was like a number, like I think four or seven wives. Oh, so he's like, a never achiever. Yeah, he was definitely. Well, he was. There's a lot of things I could call him besides <laughs> that. <laughs> when, you know, his wives get younger and younger as they go, there's, there's names for that. Yeah. And pedophile is one of them. Although some people argue that he wasn't a pedophile because they were, you know, whatever. Um, they weren't children, but, you know, 14 isn't a child. You know, I'm like, don't even at me with yeah. that. So, that is just gross when a 40 and a 50-year-old man. Yeah, because the truth is if somebody's 50 and they're dating a 22-year-old, I still think they're dating a child. Like That's that's just not even acceptable. Yeah. So so that there's a lot of things that you can call my father and – that is one of them. So you have 50 siblings. How many of them are still LDS? Any of them? There's none of my siblings today. All, well, all of my siblings have made it out of the cult. That's my good. father's cult does not exist anymore. Though fundamentalist Mormon cults do exist. Uh, just not my father's. Um, that one was so horrible, it burned itself to the ground, basically. And everybody left. So, of all my siblings that made it out alive, because not all of them did, and of the ones that are not in prison, because 
there are some that will serve life sentences in prison. Um, there's probably, there's two of my siblings that, um, that still believe in polygamy and the practice of polygamy, but they don't live it for two different reasons. That's their stories, you know, but most everybody else has gotten out of the fundamentalist Mormon uh, ideology and theology. And now there's all of us just scattered across the spectrum (laughs) of places where everybody landed from agnostic, atheist, uh, you know, all this, there's Hindu and, you know, all these different faith practices and even some that converted to the modern day Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints that, you know, they went kind of back to the roots of that just because fundamentalism wasn't serving anyone. It was, it was awful. So, so dive into your story where things really start to unfold. Uh, Like, so you're on the run, I'm guessing from like age three on you're on the run. When do you ever realize that you're on the run? Like when, when do things start to become very real? How do you break out of this? Take me through all of that. Well, we um, were on the run for a lot, um, moving from city to city and back and forth to Mexico, et cetera. Uh, there was, we were told that we were being persecuted because we were God's you know, chosen people. So that explained all the running. So we just had to like live with it. <laughs> There was no getting away from it. And do most of the guys that become like your dad, do they look at themselves as God? Very much so. Yeah, because Very. it's like when when it's like God is mad at, <laughs> you know, it no, just seems like they're always talking about themselves. They're, um, every single person that left Joseph Smith's, the, you know, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and became fundamentalist, there are a whole laundry list of people who consider themselves to be what's called the one mighty and strong, which is part of their sacred text that there's going to be one mighty and strong. That's going to set the house of God in order in the last days. And every single one of them (laughs) over and over and over, I'm the one mighty and strong. And that's where the, the problems begin. And my dad you know, he was the one mighty and strong before him. It was his older brother um, who was the one who inherited the mantle from our grandfather. And my, the first person my father ever had killed was his older brother because he inherited the mantle. And so people doubted whether he was the one mighty and strong instead of Joel. And so my dad and Joel were working together at first. And then there was a split, and the split happened when I was nine months old. And then when I was three, it, things became violent. And my father had his brother killed, thinking that all of Joel's followers would come to him because now he's the only one left. He must be the one mighty and strong. And that didn't happen, of course. Oh, so everybody knew he murdered him. Everybody knew. Um, it wasn't my father that murdered him. My father didn't ever murder anybody even though there's a list of you know 25 to 35 people that are dead as a result of my father but my father never killed anyone he would order the people that followed him to go and do it and that's how men were in his good graces is they would go and carry out so my if father's you orders. want a wife you gotta murder somebody so basically not every time there's exceptions of course 
And there were times when he ordered his wives to do the killing, and they would. His his children would do the killing. And some of them are serving life sentences in prison because of that. And so when that happened all those years ago, and um, my father had his brother killed, that put a split between our two families that has been four decades long. It's been only in the last few years that um, the Joelites, which is what Joel's children and followers were called, had anything to do with the Ervilites, which is my father's children and followers. And it's been four, it took four decades of no contact before anybody could see the light of day as to like how to reconnect and how to, how do we put this, how do we get past this family, um, just modern day Cain and Abel story. (laughs) It, It was, it was, it was way more than anybody could overcome for four decades. And then, um, it was about 2016 when I made contact accidentally on Twitter, made contact with one of Joel's children. And when I realized what I had done, it was like, oh my gosh, I've spoken to Joel's children publicly and, you know, we're not allowed. We knew as Ervil's children, we weren't allowed. And so, but she and I became friends. And so that was the first that I'm aware of <laughs> in four decades. So that just began this um, senseless loss of life uh, with my father believing that um, um, there was a doctrine, in addition to the doctrine of plural marriage, that's what they call it, because they don't live polygamy, they live plural marriage. So they can... <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's word salad, you know. (laughs) (laughs) You know, the doctrine of plural marriage and then the doctrine of blood atonement. And blood atonement is a doctrine taught by Joseph Smith and Brigham Young um, that says there are certain sins that the blood of Christ can't cover. And therefore, if you commit one of those sins, then you have to atone for your own sin with the shedding of your blood. And that was the doctrine that my father just took and ran away with. And took to an extreme and anybody that you know was a false prophet in his mind which every other polygamist saying they were the one mighty and strong were obviously a false prophet and he could order blood atonement on them because they weren't following the true prophet you know like it was so messed up in his thinking that that he could do that and say that and then the messed up people that followed him that uh, contributed to this slaughter of people over two decades from the 60s. You know, the first one happened in 1973. The last uh, time was in the late 1980s, early 1990s. Um, but so much happened and so many people lost their lives so senselessly because he took this doctrine and took it to an extreme. Take me through how you get out, what age you are, what happens. Uh, Have you already been married off at this point? I want to hear all of it. (laughs) Well, there was, um, my father eventually was arrested. So lots of people arrested, tried, some uh, tried and acquitted. 
Um, and then my father was arrested, tried, and convicted. So that sent him to maximum security prison, life sentence. Um, and he never pulled the trigger on anybody, but he was the one who orchestrated it. So he went to prison. How long were these trials when he was tried? Like, was this like a three-year? Well, it just depended. Like, depends. I I was young. Um, it was, I think, 1979 when he was arrested, or 78 or 79 when he was arrested. And he actually was arrested twice. The first time he was arrested, and he he was put into a Mexican jail, where and he was um, tried for the murder of his brother. And he did not have to serve that sentence. And a lot of people say there was money involved with getting him out. A bribe in off. Mexico. I know. <laughs> so he was arrested that time. And then, again, he was arrested years later when, um, and because of his wives and his one of his wives and stepdaughter killed a prophet of a of leader of one of the other fundamentalist cults and he ordered it so they were you know tried and acquitted and my father was tried for that murder and convicted and so that happened in like 1979 um in 1981 he died in prison under very mysterious circumstances. I have very, um, I have conspiracy theories about that, and I have receipts. So, <laughs> about how he died in prison, and so care we, to elaborate? We can go into that. <laughs> yeah, um, let's hear it. So, um, it's 1981. I'm 12 years old when he dies in prison. I remember the funeral that we had for him. I'm 12 and a curious girl at this age where uh, when you go to the front of the funeral home and there's the casket with the remains, you know, there. It was my father and I'd only seen him twice in my whole life. And so and I'm looking at the, the body there in the casket and... It's so, I'm so curious about this dead body because I'd never seen one before. So it wasn't like a morbid thing. It was just like, well, this is so interesting. And I even touched his hand thinking like, what does a dead body feel like, <laughs> you know? And, you know, because people were saying that it's, they get cold. And so I wanted to feel what that felt like. So I touched it. I was very observant and looking and I noticed that, um, they had him in a suit with a white shirt, very Mormonish, you know. Look. Yeah. <laughs> um, ready to knock on a doorbell. <laughs> and and I remember as a twelve year old noticing that there was makeup on the white collar of his shirt. That was there was makeup covering on his neck, and I remember seeing the dark bruising under the makeup on his neck, and it never occurred to me anything at 12 to think anything that was just what dead people looked like well much later years later i'm a grown adult and i hear that there's an obituary for my father in that was done in the new york times and so i just googled it and found the obituary of my father and on my father's death certificate it says that he died of a heart attack. In the New York Times obituary, where some reporter had interviewed some of the guards from the prison, 
they said that um, that he died, uh, that he committed suicide by punching himself in the throat. Which did it kind of feel like Epstein killed himself? Kind of, <laughs> like, yeah, my dad killed himself. Sure, mm-hmm. he punched himself in the throat. And I've talked to morticians. I've talked to people who, you know, that's their job is to study crime and <laughs> do all of that. I've, like I've had the opportunity to talk to a lot of people, and when I say that, all of them look at me like that. Just sounds crazy. Like yeah. never in the history of ever. And so, so in that article where these guards are reporting this facts, you know. Um, they say that he committed suicide and that there was a note and there was no note. Like my mother was the one who ended up with his, you know, whatever his personal belongings were. There was no note. And people reported that there was a note and that he had some pact with one of his wives. There was no, those, like almost all the stories ended up coming out and people talked because you can't keep secrets if there's more than one person who knows it. You know, like, yeah. <laughs> it's just not possible to keep a secret unless you're the only one who knows it, you know? So stories were told, there's no no, there was no pack, there was nothing. And the bruising around his neck was him punching himself in the throat. I don't believe that at all. And there were people who wanted him dead that were better off with him dead, that were very powerful people. And so we won't have to name names, but... I could. <laughs> does it? So I, yeah. So, does it feel like Epstein? Yes, for sure. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Because um, that guy didn't kill himself. <laughs> he didn't. I don't believe he killed himself either. And so, um, I mean, it's possible that he's alive and well with some new face and new name on some island somewhere. That's that's even. A I know. Possibility. I went. I went down that Reddit story, by yes. the way. <laughs> so, so, so I don't believe that my father um, died in prison or died of heart attack or committed suicide. I don't believe that at all. Um, but at the same time, it was my father dying in prison that kind of cracked open the door for me to get out. And so whoever did that, for whatever their reasons were, um, I'm still grateful. Like, I'm not going to try to <laughs> figure out what's going on and name names or whatever. It's like, let's, what's done is done, and it helped me. It helped all of our family that my father was now dead. And so... It so was, were there people in the Latter-day Saints faith that would want him dead for reasons? Or like, who are, the, who are these, like, what are the people that want to protect him? It's probably best that I not say <laughs> stuff like that. Come on. <laughs> uh, I mean, there were just, he had a lot of enemies because of his, um, his killing sprees yeah. that he did. So, I mean, it was, there were so many people who wanted him dead. So I'll let that. Let the okay. listener make their own <laughs> conclusions about that. Um, but when that happened, when my father was arrested and in prison, at that point, um, I was living in Denver, and his right-hand man was Dan Jordan. Um, and there's so many people who say and verify that it was Dan Jordan that killed my, my father's brother way back in the day. So he was my dad's right-hand man. And he was supposed to be the one taking care of Ervil's children while Ervil was in prison. But that was not happening. He had all his wives and children to take care of. 
and he had an appliance business in Denver that he was responsible for, and Ervil's children were his slaves. So we weren't taken care of. He wasn't, he didn't, couldn't have cared less. We were a nuisance and a bother to him, but he needed us to work to bring in the money. So we had been living in Denver for a couple of years as slaves, basically. And in because my father was now in prison, he kind of lost some control over the group. Not all. It's like the modern-day Warren Jeffs, you know, controlling things from prison. It's, it was happening. And so my older brother was working in Houston with a couple of other men that had been followers of my father but were hadn't actually um, left the cult, but they had distanced themselves from my father, and with good reason. All of them had been part of the killing, and they didn't want to have anything to do with that anymore. And so they were living and working in Houston. My older brother uh, showed up one day with a U-Haul truck, <laughs> and for the first time we packed up all of our things and moved, whereas every other time was in the middle of the night and let's go. So we moved to Houston, and it's there that under the care and administration of Mark Shanoth, who actually cared about the children, you know, cared about the people. And he had an appliance business that he was running, but we had to work, but he would pay us for our work. I mean, $5 a week isn't a lot, when, but it's a lot when you're a kid who has been slave, a slave getting nothing, being promised money, but never getting any. He would actually pay us $5 a week. And when you're 11, 12, you know, making $5 a week, <laughs> yeah. you know, you could, you know, save up your $5 for, you know, three, four, six weeks and buy a pair, a brand new pair of jeans, you know? Yeah. Gloria Vanderbilt with the little <laughs> swan stitched on the pocket. Before my time. <laughs> I mean, all, all your listeners that I'm dating myself, that's all. <laughs> you know, and then you could save up your $5 for several more weeks and go into Marshalls and, and buy a pair of Nike tennis shoes that fit. Yeah, you know, that weren't hand-me-downs. That weren't hand-me-downs or dumpster diving from the Goodwill boxes. I did that too. So I had jeans that fit and Nike tennis shoes that fit. And I'm at that age and stage where those kinds of things have are becoming important, you know, when you're in that. Yeah, and are you at a public school at this time? At the, t at the time we were. Mark did start a private school. Well, an unaccredited school, <laughs> but... The reason why is because if you were in public school, you had to work all day. You, would, you were in school all day. You didn't have a lot of working hours after school let out. So he started a private school where we could go to school and get our education. Um, so we would go to school until noon, have a quick lunch break, and then go and work in the warehouse and then get paid $5 a week for our work. You know? But he was also providing the education that was an actual education. You know, So he actually cared about our well-being and this was going on where this is our life and it's the it's the first time that even my mom is paid for her work and she could shop for groceries in the grocery store and buy cereal in the grocery store aisle like <laughs> I mean we were buying we were she was buying gallons of whole milk you know the I mean it was just like this was the best life we had ever had and and it was good 
Mark would let us go to the roller skating rink every Friday, pay all our way in. We could roller skate to secular music. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and um, we could go to the Over movies. The <laughs> um, Air Tonight by uh, Phil Collins was a big one at the time. <laughs> Crack that whip. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, so we were allowed to listen to secular music. Uh, we would go to the movie theater my mom would take us to the dollar movies, you know. And um, so before we, we'd all pile into the car and uh, she would take us to the donut store that was right by the movie theater and get their day-old donuts, which are still good, by the way. You know, they get the day-old big old boxes. Hey, better of, than three days in the dumpster, right? Correct. <laughs> Very astute comment right there. So the day-old donuts and so we would get the little snacks because she couldn't afford the snacks in the movie theater. So we'd get the donuts eat them, go to the movies, dollar movie. And we were allowed to watch movies and we would listen to the radio. I bought my very own Kenny Rogers greatest hits <laughs> record <laughs> during that time. <laughs> okay. And so you're 13, 14 at the time. I'm 12. Okay. You're still 12. Okay. I'm still 12 at this time. So, um, that's, that is our life at the time. And, um, at that point we're still in public school that's a whole different thing to a whole different experience. But all of those things were happening. And I remember the, the, the day that um, because we were all working in the appliance business, I would answer the phone and I made a, I would sell washers and dryers to people. I made my first sale at 11, you know, just my mom had to step out and go to the run an errand and a customer came and because I had heard the spiel like yeah. so many times, the customer comes and I'm like 11 and I'm like, he needs a dryer. So, okay, here's all the dryers. Here's the prices. Here's the guarantee. Blah, blah, blah. Here we go. He's like, okay, I'll take this one. I write up the thing. I write up the ticket. He pays me the check. And back when there were checks. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then I help him load the dryer onto his truck and my mom comes home and I've sold an appliance because I knew how. And I answered the phone and talked to people all the time. Um, I would um, answer the phone, take the pickup calls for people who wanted to get rid of their old appliances. And we would go and buy them really cheap and then fix them. The boys would be taught to fix the appliances and the girls would be taught to clean them and paint them and make them look like new. So all of that was my job was to take those calls and then write all the information down, the address and all that. And then go back to the maps books because you had a map, a book that was a map that was maps of Houston. And then on the wall, there was this giant map that each numbered box corresponded to a page in the book. That's the days before Google Maps <laughs> and Waze. So I had to um, plot all the different addresses and then put the cards in the order that the driver was going to go so that there wasn't any backtracking. And that was my job. So I did it. So anyway, the phone, it rings on a Sunday morning and I'm used to answering the phone. So I pick up the phone and before I can say hello, I realized that my mom had already answered the phone upstairs. And back when those kinds of phones were available and I overheard the caller was Dan Jordan giving my mom the news that my father had been found dead in his prison cell. And that changed everything. 
so my dad died. You know, we had the funeral. I saw the bruising on his neck, you know, as a 12-year-old. And then because everybody had left Denver, all my father's children, wives had left Denver, leaving Dan's wives and children alone, they didn't have to work as hard as we did. Well, his business went under. He didn't have any slaves. Mark's business was thriving. So after my father died, probably within six months to nine months, the timeline is fuzzy to me. Um, there were changes happening. Things are shifting, and you can tell that there's a lot going on behind the scenes and the undercurrent. There was a lot of fear um, because what's going to happen now? Like, who's now the prophet? Who's the leader? Um, lots of people spread out. This was the days before cell phones and email and, you know, letters and phone calls were how you communicated. So um, there's a lot of, you can just tell that there's an undercurrent of unknown and fear and people coming and going and deciding things and conversations happening. And I overheard some of these conversations and eventually figured out that my mom was planning to move us back to Denver and that Dan Jordan had convinced her that Mark was leading Irville's children on a path to hell by letting us go to the movies and go roller skating and listen to secular music. I mean, duh, that's pretty obvious. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so I just, I knew that that was happening and I did not want to go back to Denver. Obviously. I'm paid $5 a week yeah. here, you know, for my work. Have you seen these jeans? <laughs> I mean, yeah. So, um, and I'm like 13 now. So it's, I'm at that age where you're, you're thinking and processing things that, that you can't as a child. And so in my mind, I'm not trying to run away from a cult. I don't even know I'm in a cult still, yeah. you know, I'm not. I just don't want to go to Denver. And because my whole life I had watched people being switched and moved and back and forth and siblings go to there and then they come back and then this other one's over here and then and everybody came and went like like water. It was very fluid. In my mind, it was like, well, I want to stay here. I want to stay in Houston. I don't want to go to Denver. And so I called my sister that was married to Mark and they had five children at the time. They eventually had six, but at the time they had five. Um, and I said, Lillian, I don't want to go to, De to Denver. And she said to me, start walking. So I made sure that I was wearing my Gloria Vanderbilt jeans and my <laughs> Nike tennis shoes. And I walked out of my house with just the clothes on my back. I knew because I'd scheduled all those calls and... I knew maps and I knew directions. I have a GPS downloaded in my head from the factory, you know. <laughs> so I knew how to get to her house, which was miles away. And so I started walking towards her house, even though I knew that other people in my family were going to be driving that route um, from the warehouse to their house, back to our house, you know, and that I could be spotted. And it was a really frightening walk because I knew if I didn't get out and get to Lillian's that if my mom put everybody in the car and started driving I wouldn't have a choice so I walked 
a little over three miles, which felt like I had walked for days, but it was probably an hour, you know. <laughs> um, I'd walked a little over three miles when Lillian found me and picked me up. So if you ever do walking or running, you know that a little over three miles is a 5K, right? Yep. I call that my 5K to freedom because she found me, picked me up, and then she took me to an older sister of mine, her house there in Houston, and um, she put me to bed and, you know, sleep here, whatever. And then in the middle of the night, my sister, the other one, comes and wakes me up and says, I'm going to climb out the window, go to the back of the yard, go to the left gate. There's a hole in the gate. Climb through it and sit on the other side and don't make a sound and don't come back until I get you. So I did. I climbed out the window, went and went sat on the other side of that gate. It's the middle of the night. And wait for my sister to come back and get me. And what I didn't know was happening was um, that my mom and my sister Celia um, noticed I was missing. And they came looking for me. They looked in a different different places that I thought that I, meet, that I might be. My sister lied for me, said I wasn't there. And um, then they looked, they and I didn't know this until years later that they looked for me everywhere. And even though they couldn't find me um, after they were done looking, my mom did exactly what I suspected she was going to do. And she packed up all my siblings in the back of the station wagon and drove back to Denver, leaving everything behind. So then following day, um, Lillian comes back to my other sister's house. She picks me up and they put me in a hotel and hide me for three days in a hotel. So there I am in this La Quinta in Houston off of 290. Um, she left me with some cash for the cook candy and the Coke machine. And once a day, she would bring me a Happy Meal from McDonald's. So I was living life large, man. <laughs> TV all day, didn't have to work. Candy no and Coke, school. no school, just brought a meal, you know. See, it's like this sounds so horrifying. And then you're like, it was awesome. It was awesome for, you know, like, and that's how messed up it was. That that, that would be like, I have good memories of laying around in that hotel and just like, don't leave the hotel. You can go and walk out and go get candy and Cokes, but don't leave the hotel area. Don't go walking down the road, Yeah, you know, whatever. Um, and so I was in that hotel for three days. Eventually, another one of my sisters that also ran away at the same time, we didn't plan it together, but both of us ran away the same day. Eventually, she ends up coming to the hotel with me, and so now two of us are there. And once Lillian was sure that my mom was long gone, she came and picked us up, took us back to the house where we could pack up our things and, and move into her house with her. So living with Mark and Lillian um, began uh, uh, my journey to, to where I am today. Now, so Lillian is your older, one of your older sisters. She's a half-sister half from sister. one of my dad's wives. And Mark is her husband. And she just has one husband. She just has one husband. They were, there was a lot of pressure on both of them to practice polygamy and for Mark to take additional wives. And both of them resisted that pressure and didn't succumb. 
and managed to keep their marriage monogamous somehow. And were they still LDS? They were still fundamentalist at that point in time. They still hadn't like gotten out because when you said, I'm out, I'm out of here. You're cut off completely, right? You're cut off completely for sure. But you also now have a target on your back because the people that my dad would target were people who had left the cult, who had information that they could go to the police with. If you had information that you could go to the police with about any of the criminal activity that was taking place and you left the cult, you had a target on your back. And it was those cult members that would go and carry out my father's orders to take them out, to blood atone them. And so people knew if they got out, they were dead. And so I don't believe that Mark and Ed and Dwayne, the ones who were running that Houston part or the Houston faction, I don't believe that they ever actually vocalized that they were leaving, but they did distance themselves quite a bit, especially after my father died. And there was this uh, separation, especially when Dan turns, you know, my mother and the other wives against them and gets the wives to move back to Denver, you know, and there was definitely a, you know, these people are wicked and they're going to, so there was a separation there, but because my dad is dead, um, people aren't being killed anymore, except that while my father was in prison, He wrote this long, scathing, crazy um, book that's, you know, printed out. I have a copy of it. It's, you know, f- five inches tall. What? Of uh, his, his revelations that just got crazier and crazier as he was languishing in prison, where everybody that um, betrayed him was named in these, in these pages of this book book called the book of the new covenant is what it what he called it and um, so in essence it was a list of people who needed to be blood atoned because they didn't um, follow his laws follow his teachings follow his commands and one of the commands was come guns a blazing and break me out of maximum security (laughs) prison like everybody on the outside knew that was a suicide mission didn't do it so all of these people are named and so many people like everybody betrayed him while he's in prison he's a he's a man that's lost his mind he he has mental health issues that were never treated because people that have those kinds of mental health issues don't think there's anything wrong with them right yeah so (laughs) He lived his entire life with mental health issues that went untreated and that just got worse and worse and worse the more, uh, the, the further down this rabbit hole he got. Um, and by the time he's languishing in prison and everybody's just kind of like, well, what do we do now? Everybody betrays him. So everybody's names are on these lists. Yeah. Okay, so um, you're in a good family now. Better family? Way better. Yeah. <laughs> like a good man. Mark was a good man. Okay. And there's, uh, you're 13. Mm-hmm. What happens next? So remember Mark and Lillian started this little private school where we yep. would go to half, half day of school, half day of work. Okay. Well, it used a certain curriculum that 
he had learned about in USA Today magazine or something. And so when all the wives and children left, it left them with me and my sister as students because their kids weren't even in the school at that point. They were just doing it for the teenagers. And so their kids were younger. So they left them with two students, but there happened to be a very small uh, church school because all this curriculum was for church schools. There happened to be a church school down the road from their house about half a mile that used this same curriculum. And so Mark went and talked to the pastor. And after Mark confirmed that at this church, they didn't teach the very dangerous doctrine about once you're saved, you're always saved. Um, once Mark confirmed that that's not what we would be taught, um, because they did teach that you could lose your salvation. <laughs> uh, Mark um, traded all their curriculum and the desks and the furniture and everything that they had purchased and created and made for his little school. They traded all that for my tuition. And I was enrolled in this little private school that was at a normal Christian school that had doctrinal beliefs that were marginally acceptable to Mark. <laughs> and I, so I, uh, November 17th, 1982, I walked into that school over the very first day. How'd that go? And just the fact that I was living in Houston, that I didn't have to go back to Denver, all of, you know, my life was good at that point. Um, and then I get enrolled in this little school where I'm in school all day, like regular kid, you know? Um, and at this school, they knew enough about my background that the teachers were just extra kind to me, extra loving. They took me under their wing and, and helped me adapt and adjust to this new type of learning and schooling and environment. But what I experienced at that little school with those teachers was vastly different than anything I had ever experienced in my life. And so it became like, this is the most amazing thing ever. This is the best. In my mind, at 13, having lived the life I did, yeah. <laughs> I had reached like, this is the the best it could ever be and made friends for the first time for the very first time in my life. I made friends with people outside of our cult friends that I still have to this day. And um, so I enrolled November 17th. I just 17th. picture like your friends being like, my parents are weird. And you're like, <laughs> <laughs> well, we were taught not to talk about it. And that didn't, it took me a long time to be able to talk about it. So I just kind of blended and didn't say and didn't talk about it. And, you know, they kind of knew stuff, but not a lot, you know. But, you know, so I enrolled November 17th. And then whatever that later that month um, on Thanksgiving Day, they had already planned a youth retreat. So 10 days later, here I am like in the best environment I've ever experienced in my life and then my sister lets me go to a youth I don't know if you've ever been on a youth retreat yeah. <laughs> you have I mean you they're they're the same you know you play all day and then at night you get a little bit dressed up and you had to take a dress <laughs> or dress clothes you know 
dress up and go and hear a sermon, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Same thing. Well, I've, I've worked them, so I never went as a kid, but okay. I've, I've watched people, you know, I, I know the ploy, like I know yeah. the bait and switch. Yes. <laughs> so I get to go to this youth retreat after 10 days of being in this little school. And of course, you know, we play all day. It's, it's the greatest ever. All of it is just the best. And then at that night, the youth pastor uh, gives a sermon and invites anybody that wants to accept Christ to stay in the room. And then he dismisses all the other kids, you know, all the other teenagers. <laughs> and generally speaking, it would have been in my nature to, I don't like FOMO would have been real. Like what's they, what are they doing that I don't get to do? Cause yeah. all of this is awesome. <laughs> well, it was like, whatever they're selling, I'm buying. And so I sat there and everybody else left and the youth pastor stayed and, and prayed with me and I accepted Christ. So now you go back to your family and announce you're a Christian. No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I knew better than to go back and okay. announce that I was a Christian. I kept that under my hat and pretended like everything was just the same. And they didn't know what happened at youth retreats because they had never been, you know? <laughs> so, so I flew under the radar for a long time because if I, in my mind, I thought if Mark and Lillian know that I've converted to this new Christianity that we had never heard spoken of well <laughs> prior to this, it was always the, the word Christian was spoken with derision. Like it was the worst you could possibly believe. So we're, um, so I, I become a Christian and I'm not going to tell Mark and Lillian this. It's just going to be like, I live this life at church school and then a different life at home. Well, one of the requirements to having a child enrolled in the school was that the parents had to attend church once a week. You couldn't just like say, here, fix my kid and you live off like the devil, you know, like you had to show up at church. So Mark and Lillian did over and over and over. They, they kept showing up and eventually both of them also became Christians. Wow. Okay. So did you have this, Hey guys, I've been one for three years. Like how much later did this happen than when it happened for you? For them? It was a very, it was a very gradual thing and it probably was maybe a year or two or something I, the timeline is obviously, I wasn't like keeping dates and recording times, you know, but it was much, much later. And, you know, then all of a sudden they're talking in church and talking about their experience. And, and it was like, oh, okay, I'm safe now. <laughs> I won't get sent back to Denver. Yeah. Because that was my biggest fear. Yeah. So did, did your your mom just gave up or like when they couldn't find you and she moved to Denver, what? That, she is did that not end? just give up. No, okay. that was not the end. Um, not too long after I ran away from home and I'm living with Mark and Lillian. Um, I, and they had just enrolled me in that little school. I mean, it was all brand new. It was all recent. I came home from school one day and I'm in the house by myself. Mark and Lillian are at their business. Um, and I'm at home by myself, and I look out the back window, and I see my mom coming around the corner. And literally, like, the blood drained out of me. 
and my knees buckled and I was scared spitless. And I had to dial the phone, find the phone and dial it and get down and, and not let myself be seen. Made sure the door was locked, not let myself be seen. F- find the phone and somehow dial the number and call Lillian. She answers. I'm like, Lillian, my mom is here. My mom is here. And she's like, stay calm. We will be right there. They were 10 minutes away. And so for 10 minutes... I'm hiding behind furniture, just waiting, and she's knocking on the door, and I'm just ignoring it. I'm not going to answer the door. And then Mark and Lillian show up. And my mom spent the rest of the evening there. And obviously my mom is my legal guardian. Like, she's the legal person that has, you know, she's my mother. Yeah, They are not. And so it wasn't like they could hold me there or hold me against my will if I wanted to go with my mom. And my mom spent that entire evening trying to convince me to go back to Denver with her. And, and I don't even know, at 13, a young kid who's never experienced anything in the world, um, I don't know how I had the inner fortitude to just resist that. And all I remember is over and over and over saying, I, w- I want to live here in Houston. I want to live with Mark and Lillian. I want to stay here. I don't want to go to Denver. Over and over and over, no matter what she said, I just had to hold my ground. And I don't know to this day how I did it because in my, my just normal everyday personality, the one that just is who I am, is a people pleaser. Yeah. And so the fact that I was able to withstand that incredible pressure from my own mother to move back to Denver with her is is still to me a mystery. But what I didn't know at that time and that I came to know later was remember I had another sister that ran away with me? Yep. Okay. So she my mother and the person that came with her, um, there's different stories of who it was, and I don't have a recollection of like the actual <laughs> person's name. Um, I have my idea who it was, but they say it wasn't. So anyway, <laughs> um, my mom and that person found my other sister, Marilyn, first. And they literally tried to kidnap her and force her into the vehicle with them. And because Marilyn was a little bit older, a um, little bit more redheaded than me, she had a little bit more, you know, spit and vinegar inside of her, she literally fought and clawed and kicked her way out of that and forced them to leave her behind. She would not get in the car with them. So... By the time they came to try to find me, they had already changed their tactic. I don't know if they had come for me first. I don't know that I could have fought them off. Yeah. But Marilyn did, and that was my saving grace. Because by the time she got to me, she said, well, we, we'll try to talk her into it. And, and then I had the fortitude 
to fight my way out of that with my words. And so my mom left, leaving me in Houston, which was like a big relief. Yeah. Um, but Mark and Lillian, knowing that I was 13, you know, they were all, they had always said, even from the get, from the beginning, if you change your mind, we will buy you a plane ticket to Denver. The minute you change your mind, you, we'll put you on a plane. We will buy you a ticket. And I knew, I knew that they would. They had bought me a plane ticket to Denver years before when I got back from Mexico and they put us on a plane to Denver. Um, that was under different circumstances. So I knew that they would do it. And so I knew I had that out if I wanted it, but I never wanted it. So um, they, um, they always had that um, very openness about that situation where they didn't want me to feel like I was trapped or that I couldn't change my mind. And then the more I got involved in the school and eventually the next spring I found a little boyfriend, you know, by the time that was happening, I had zero interest in Denver ever. (laughs) Um, And so, you know, life became just as good as it could possibly be. You know, I went to school all day, came home, worked in their house with them, worked in their appliance business with them. Everybody ran appliance businesses. That's what we knew. <laughs> so crazy. And so, you know, I helped them with their business, helped them. They had six kids by then. And so I, I was just their Lillian's right-hand person. I could run their business. Um, when Hurricane Alicia came through Houston, I, I was living with them. They had gone on a family vacation. And I had stayed back because with them gone, I could talk on the phone with my boyfriend. You know, because when they were there, I couldn't. They were very strict about those things. And so I had said, y'all go on vacation. I'll stay here and manage the whole business. And I did. <laughs> they were gone a week. And Hurricane Alicia came through. And there I am boarding up, putting all the appliances in the garage and boarding up everything, wow. taping windows. At like 14? Fif- 14, 15 years old, you know, whatever year it was. People can math and figure out <laughs> how old I am. But it's not very long. Um, after, so I'm there running their whole business. They left me with signed checks to buy appliances and cash and, and I'm running their business for them. And then when they're there when they're kids, I'm, I'm helping them with their six children. That's a lot for anybody. Whoa. whoa, whoa. Okay. They have a bunch of kids too. They have six children. Okay. I, somehow I missed this part. <laughs> <laughs> so they had six children. I'm living with them. Um, other siblings of mine, uh, different stories that, that are their stories to tell, had come and lived with them. We were just packed into their little house. And the other siblings, um, somehow they were older than me and not quite as highly motivated as I was to uh, stay there. So they wouldn't obey their rules, and their rules were very strict. Um, And so the other siblings were eventually, you know, forced out, and you have to go find someplace else if you're not going to follow our rules. So I learned it. Like very quickly, (laughs) you tow the line, you don't, you know, you follow the rules or if you're going to break them, you just don't get caught, you know. (laughs) So life in Houston at that little school with Mark and Lillian um, was, it just became the most normal I had ever experienced. And it was as good 
a life as I could possibly imagine. Eventually, I graduated from that little school. Um, my, uh, my graduating class was two. There was me and one of my other sisters that eventually left Denver and came to Houston. Oh, okay. And she finally escaped. That's her story. I hope she tells it one day. <laughs> I want to write it one day. Her story's going to be way better than mine. I promise you that. Um, she eventually ran away from home and, and came to Houston and graduated with me because she had been forced to quit school, put to work in Denver. And so when she got to Houston, they allowed her to finish up. This little school worked with her to um, finish her lacking credits. And then I was going to be like a graduating class of one valedictorian <laughs> yeah. and all of that. I was homeschooled, so I know all about this. <laughs> and then um, and then she comes along and graduates with me, and she became the valedictorian. <laughs> so I was either salutatorian or the bottom 50% of my class, whichever way you want to uh, roll okay, that so dice. <laughs> you, you graduate high school, and it doesn't sound like you're scarred from your upbringing. I'm very scarred. I just don't know it yet. Yeah, okay. <laughs> like, because life was the best we had ever had. You just think, like, this is good. Like, But while I was living with them, um, I, I look back, and now that I've been through professional counseling and <laughs> 10 years of professional counseling and therapy, um, I can look back and see that I had undiagnosed depression undiagnosed anxiety, all kinds of internal things that I was just suppressing um, just because life was as good as I had ever known it. Why would I be sad about anything? And the other half of that equation was um, Lillian also had experienced so much in her life and you know, her growing up was different than mine, but she had experienced a lot and Mark had as well. And they knew they had it really good. Yep. So they wouldn't really, you couldn't really be sad in, at their house. They wanted like you to show gratitude, which gratitude is a good thing, except when it's forced. And it was kind of like forced. Like you had to be grateful. You had to smile. You had to like be pleasant to be around. And that was something that Lillian required was if you are having in a bad mood, go be in your room. Don't. <laughs> But you also had to do your work. So it wasn't like you could be in a bad mood. You had to put your face on, game face on, and smile and be pleasant to be around in order to be acceptable to her. And so I did. And so all of my pain, the trauma, the abuse, all of those things that we experienced, um, trauma, abuse, and neglect, um, it was just shoved down and suppressed because I was so grateful to have this good life. And in order to keep it, you had to suppress that. And so I did. How, so, so you graduate high school, what, what happens next? Well, um, the, the hardest things that um, I've probably ever endured took place after that. Um, I graduated in 1987 and um, stuck around and kept working for them and had made college plans, but those didn't come to fruition. So I was there living with them. And in 
June of 1988, um, all of our worst fears came true. Um, in August of 1987, right after I had graduated, um, somebody, now we know who it was now, but um, Dan Jordan was killed. Dan Jordan was on that list of my, that my father had left. And Dan Jordan was like a number one on the list, and he was killed. And so um, Mark and Lillian sat me and their oldest son down one day. And, and so, so I'm correct, Dan is your mom's new husband. No, oh. he, my mom did not marry Dan. He was married to several of my half-sisters and others. But anyway, so Dan Jordan gets killed. Um, Mark and Lillian sit me and Brandon, their oldest son, down and explain to us what's happened and that his name is on this list too. I didn't know anything about a list, you know, but I know now. And um, Mark, Ed, and Dwayne are all on the list, and they're all there in Houston. Well, sorry, Ed was right here in Irving <laughs> at the time. Um, he had an appliance business right here in Irving. Um and they tell us that they have to start carrying guns and tell us, keep your eyes open. If you see anything, you tell us. Look over your shoulder. Be on the lookout. And, you know, I, I just graduated from high school. I'm seven, you know, 18 years old, I think. And their son is probably 13. You know, just young but he's the oldest, you know? And so we begin life living in fear again. And all this time, you know, for, a, for months, you're living with this fear in this pit in your gut of what's going to happen. Who's going to come after us? And then... You know, time goes on and nothing happens. And so, you know, you're, you're my age, living your life, and you kind of forget a little bit. And you take your eye off the ball, you know. You're just, life kind of goes back to normal, if that is even a thing. Yeah, it's it's like, if, I don't know, I carry a gun on me. So when you first start carrying a gun, you're like, oh, man, everybody knows it. You know, but then after you've carried one, I've carried one for eight years now that I'm just like, I always have one on me. It's like, it just, just feels second nature. Yeah. Uh, and so you're right. It just, just things become normal that are abnormal over yeah. time. So over time, we just like life became a little bit more normalized again in the months that followed. And then um, June 27th, 1988, our worst nightmare Um becomes a living thing. And um, I had I had been sick um, that spring, that summer. Um, I had been to the doctor several times. Um, I was spending my own money that I had earned. They paid me more than $5 a week by that time. I was getting $75 a week, you know. So but here I am sick going to the doctor, paying my own doctor bill because I don't have insurance and paying for my own medicine. And it's quite expensive and it's adding up. And every time I would go to the doctor, you know, he would say, you have walking pneumonia. 
you need to rest. And in in that house and under them, with them, you, there was just no such thing as rest. Um, when you got sick, you took your medicine and kept going. Yep. And Lillian did the same thing. Mark did the same thing. It wasn't like they were asking people to do stuff they weren't willing to do. And so I just kept getting my medicine, taking it, going to work, never resting, like the doctor said. And so I kept having to go back. Finally, after spending hundreds of dollars, I was so frustrated that I made another appointment and said, Lillian, please come with me. Come with me to the doctor. Because every time I walk in there, he listens to my heart, looks in my ears, looks down my throat, and then gets out his notepad and makes me another prescription. And I'm not getting better. So I begged her to come with me so that she could somehow, like, get this doctor to help me. Yeah. Well, we walk in, we get... um, the same thing happens. He checks my ears, checks my nose, throat, you know, listens to my heart, listens to my lungs, and then gets out his notepad, and I just start bawling my eyes out, like, here we go again, a big old doctor bill and more medicine. And so Lillian says, hey, why don't you go wait for me in the, in the, in the waiting room? So she talks to him. He's kind. He doesn't charge me for that visit. They give me the prescription, and this time it's this really heavy-duty stuff that really knocked me out so that I would have to rest. And I'm sure he told her, and I don't know this for a fact because I never had this conversation with her. She told that he told her that I needed to rest, that I had walking pneumonia and I needed to rest. And so I didn't, I wasn't privy to that conversation. But on the way to the doctor's office, I had this curious conversation with Lillian where she says to me, because, you know, we had been to the Bill Gothard seminars. Do you remember those? Mm -mm. Lucky you. <laughs> anyway, I have a lot of salty feelings about that. Is this like a fire and brimstone type yes, of guy? Yes, very okay. much. So. Um, <laughs> What's so his name? Bill Gothard. Okay, it just sounds like a fire and brimstone type of guy. He would run these Institute and in Basic Youth Conflicts seminars that were just wildly popular at the time, but it was all just horrible theology, horrible doctrine. <laughs> but anyway, on our way to the doctor's office, we had this very curious conversation based off of one of his teachings. And she said, Anna, there's a sickness unto death, and I don't think you're going to die. There's a sickness unto salvation, and you're already saved. And then there's a sickness unto the glory of God. So let's see what happens here. This is a sickness to the glory of God. You know, and I was like, okay, whatever, you know? Yeah, this doesn't sound extreme at all. <laughs> so we, we finish at the doctor's office. I go get my prescription, and I don't know what codeine is. I don't know the effects it has on you. This is a Friday, okay? So I take the medicine. It'll be a fun weekend. I know. I take the medicine. It knocks me out. And, you know, because you, you know, in the church that we went to, they preach that if you're sick, you come to church. Like in this pandemic age, you know, if you're sick, you don't go anywhere, <laughs> you know. But back in the 80s, it was yeah. if you're sick, well, you back come in to 2019. <laughs> True. Um, you know, they were like, there's no be- better place to die than in church in God's house, you know. Yes. So here I am sick. I'm taking codeine. I'm like groggy and it's all weird and it's affecting me weird. And, and it's just. And here I go, I show up at church Sunday morning, and I'm just weird and out of it and all of that. I go to church Sunday night. 
I take the medicine before church and leave church. Like when church was over, I couldn't stand up. Like I couldn't make myself stand up. And I was like, this is so weird. I'm like, please go get Lillian. And Lillian comes and people help me walk out to the car and they put me to, we get home and I laid down on the living room floor because we were watching TV or something. I can't remember what. And I fall asleep. Lillian puts a blanket over me and a pillow under my head. And that's where I sleep that night because I was out. And then the next morning I get up and I take my medicine. It's Monday morning. Take the medicine. Get ready for work because you still go to work. Yeah. Well, because I'd taken the medicine and then I laid down on the couch because it was starting to affect me. And I fall asleep on the couch waiting for Lillian to get ready so we can go to work together. And she comes and shakes me on the shoulder and I'm groggy, you know. And for the first time ever in all the years I'd lived with her. So I went to live with them in 1982. This is 1988. This is June 27th, 1988. She tells me for the first time ever, why don't you just stay home today? Take care of the kids fine with me you know she goes to work um I stay there I'm with the kids um it's a little bit after four o'clock in the afternoon and um I get a phone call from one of the men that worked for Mark and the the second I answered the phone I knew something was wrong I mean the second I heard his voice he's like Anna are you and the kids okay Yes. Okay. There's somebody coming in a truck. Mel's coming in a truck. When he gets there, put the kids in the truck and go with him and don't ask any questions. I'm like, okay. And I already know the worst things have happened, but I don't know what they are. So I gather up the kids and two cars come and we put them in the cars and they take us to a safe house. Um, and the whole time, I'm thinking to myself, Mark and Lillian are dead. And I'm 19 years old. I'm going to take care of these children. They're the only mother thing that, I mean, I've been there like Lillian's right-hand person for all these years. And, and they're orphans now. So I'm, I'm taking care of these kids. No judge is going to take these kids away from me. I'm 19. I'll raise these kids. That's what I'm thinking this whole time that we're waiting in this house um, for somebody to come and tell us what's going on. And we waited for hours. This whole time I'm like, worst cares scenarios. Yeah, I mean, I'm just, the kids don't know what's going on. I don't know what's going on. And then eventually the pastor's wife of that church comes and finds us and and tells us that Mark has been killed. And that he was killed in his in his office there. I was supposed to be with Mark that day. And if I had been with Mark, I would have been killed too. And what about Lillian? Lillian was the mom, right? Lillian was the mom and you know they they tell me that you know Mark was killed and which in my mind was like Lillian's alive. She can take care of her kids. You know, I don't have to take these, I don't have to take this on. And and it was a relief at the same time as the worst possible 
grief, overwhelming loss from the only person in my life, then um, I called my sister Celia, the one that graduated with me, and I said, Celia, you need to come to Marianne's house. And she's like, why? Like, you just need to come here. I didn't want to um, scare her and alarm her. And then she has to get in her car and drive. So I'm like, you need to come here. And you just need to trust me. And I'm like holding it together. <laughs> I'm holding it together the, as best as I can, trying not to alarm her. But she's already alarmed. You know, she already knows. She gets there and... And I'll meet her outside and I'm like, she's already like, what's going on? Tell me what's going on. She knows something's wrong. And I'm like, calm down. Let's get inside and I'll tell you. Just be calm. Mark and Lillian's kids are inside. I don't want to frighten them. Be calm. And she's like, tell me what's going on. I mean, she is like, like she knows. And so we get inside and we go to this back bedroom and and I tell her, Mark's been killed. And she just weeps and wails loud. And I'm telling her, quiet, be real quiet. The kids, I don't want the kids to be scared and, you know, alarm them. The kids know their father died. But, you know, that's like, be kind to these kids, you know? Like, that was my main concern with those children. Yeah. And she's weeping and wailing. And, and then not long after that, um, the news comes in that it wasn't just Mark who was killed. Mark's brother, Dwayne, who had been at a different location, was also killed. Dwayne's young daughter was with him. She was killed. And then my brother, Ed, who lived here in Irving, had his appliance business here. He was also killed. Um, all of them killed at the same time on the same day, planned out. Those events became known as the four o'clock murders. And our lives were never the same after that. I don't even know what to ask. Okay. Ooh. You find out this horrific news that the family that has raised you essentially from, from a young girl uh, to a young woman is, have, has, has, not only have they been killed, but everyone in the family that's outside of fundamentalist Ellis Latter-day Saints has been killed at the same time on the same day. Yeah. That was one of the most horrifying days of my life. We, um, we were... Um, you know, of course, this is national news. Um, the police are involved. The FBI is involved. The um, the SWAT team in Houston was protecting our house. We couldn't come and go. Um, planning the funerals, which with all of them, was a massive undertaking. During the time that we're in that planning stage, of course, Lillian is stricken with grief. And, you know, I'm her right-hand person. And where is she when this all happens? 
Um, so here's, I mean, what we find out later, you know, it's like Brandon had gone to work with his dad that day, his oldest son. And um, Lillian's brother, uh, Paul, came by the office and was like, hey, let me take Brandon to lunch. Yeah, sure, take him to lunch. And then Lillian was had to go do some errands. So Mark ended up being alone during that time. Wow. Um, but, you know, the business is there. Um, I watched on the news them bringing Mark's covered body, you know, the coroner, bringing him out on those little, whatever those Stretchers. stretcher things are called that I remember that image on the news and knowing that that's where he'd been killed. Um, and then I don't know, a day later, two days later, I'm not sure. Um, because I helped them run their business, there was a point in which I had to go back to the office where he'd been killed. Bullet holes in the walls, blood spattered, you know, the fingerprinting, every, all the the grayness from the all the fingerprinting that the, the the authorities had done. All of that's still there. And I had to go back and sit there at the desk where he was killed and log into the computer, this old Epson, you know, the computer that Mark had um, for months sat and programmed so that it would print receipts wow. for the business. <clears throat> and there was information in that computer that was needed, and I had the login and, and the password or whatever it was at the time. I don't even remember. Um, but there was information that was needed, and I could access it. So I had to go back to the scene and and just bear up under that and and be helpful to the people who were trying to patch this whole thing together and figure out what's what and um and then the funerals being planned um and one night we're getting ready I'm downstairs and I'm ironing and we're already scared out of our minds and SWAT team is surrounding our house day and night we're not allowed to leave unless somebody knows where we're going. And, you know, under no conditions do you leave just for, like, to go for a walk. You know, nothing. Um, so it's nighttime, and I'm ironing some things for the next day. And all of a sudden, all of the lights go out in the house. And... Everything goes dark, and instantly, in my mind, it's, they've cut the electricity, they're coming in, they're going to shoot us all. We're all dead. And everybody is thinking the same thing. There's lots of people, family that had come into town, there's lots of people in the house, and Everybody is scrambling in the dark, saying, whispering, 
where do I hide? And I finally find my sister and Celia, and we go and hide in the bathroom in the bathtub. So we're getting as small, making ourselves as small as we can in the bathtub, hoping they don't find us. And we're there for who knows how long. Feels like forever again. And then the lights come back on. And it's like, what's happening? And somebody comes in and says that everything's okay. The, the, they had installed lights that would motion detecting lights around the house and somebody had tripped a wire, you know, a breaker, which shut off the electricity to the entire house. But for that terrifying moment, minutes, however long it took, you know you're going to die. And you're just waiting for the gunshots to start. And then you end up going to this funeral where the entire city of Houston knows what's happening. And, you know, there were so many people who knew the family and the churches and all the people that this was a massive funeral that the Houston SWAT team donated their time to protect the family at the funeral and at the uh, cemetery for the burial. Um, and so we're arriving for the funeral. And you know like, there's plainclothes police doing odd jobs, but it's not. It just looks like a worker. Yeah. <laughs> but they're plainclothes police, just keeping an eye on things. I get to the funeral, and when you pull in, you know, everybody, like there's officer, a police and authority checking every vehicle. Because years and years before, one of the tactics that my father had come up with, because he wanted to kill somebody, but they knew that they were on his list, so they were in hiding. So my dad came up with this plan to kill somebody that would force them to come to the funeral. And then they could kill him there. All of that history left us at this funeral thinking, what if they come back? And of course, all the authorities know, and the FBI knows, and the, the police know, they're all protecting us. And when I arrive at the funeral home, I was taken aside by the authorities, and the thing that they wanted to know from me was they were showing me all these pictures of my family, saying, is this good family, or are these bad family? Are these the ones that are going to come? I had to name and say, this, these people are good, these are good, these are the ones that are part of the group that is carrying on my father's orders. These are my siblings, people that I love and cared about, that I'm saying they can be the ones. These are the ones you have to watch out for. So I want to dive into who, who orchestrated this, who planned this, where this, you know, do we know whose idea it was? Do we know where the, 
the people who executed the idea are all those people in jail or all of them dead now just yeah um the people who did it are my siblings um it was my very own full-blooded brother heber who killed mark he would have killed me had i been there and he's serving a life sentence in prison and who instructed him to do this my father Okay, so he, he was just following out your father's orders. There My was father no other. Okay. Has been dead for six years and his children are still believing that he was the prophet and the only way to please God is to follow what he wrote. See, this is like radical Islam type stuff, but it's like radical Mormonism. It's know? very radical. It's very radical. Yeah, and it's not really talked about Ever. Like, I've never heard of this before. Okay, so. So so these are my siblings um, that we're deathly afraid of, with, and rightfully so. It wasn't like we were making stuff up in our minds to be afraid. They, you know, they eventually do get arrested for other stuff, and then they're in jail, and they're using aliases, so nobody even knows that they have the people that committed these crimes and then I read years later a report about the, per- they were in prison in, or in jail in Phoenix, I think. And some person that's doing their job and looking at aliases and cross-referencing, this is in the day before computers, <laughs> you know. Yeah. So there's, they're doing manual labor cross-referencing all these like these guys are just telling these weird stories and their stories are weird you can tell they're lying you can tell they're aliases you know so he's just randomly checking this and that and the other and they were arrested actually for auto theft and eventually they're going to have to release them because whatever you know you don't you can't keep somebody in jail (laughs) for auto theft and their time is coming to get released. And like literally at the last minute, some random person doing their job makes the connection somehow. I don't know all the details, but they make the connection and they figure out who they have in jail. And, and this is how long after all of this? Six months. Okay. Maybe. I don't. So for six months, you're living in complete fear, fear. that you're next. Mm-hmm. Yes. So I'm not sure exactly when that happened and how it happened, but eventually they were arrested. Well, um, so, you know, life kind of is not normal anymore. There's a lot of fear. There's a lot of, you know, Lillian is very afraid. She goes into witness protection um, with her children, and I'm kind of left running their business. (laughs) <laughs> and taking care of their house and she's in California with her kids and eventually I get flown to California to watch her kids while she goes and does some other stuff and I have to get on the plane with the alias because we didn't want anybody knowing who I was and tracking me to where she was because she was in witness protection so I got on the plane as Amanda Glass it's a cool name yeah I mean and fly <laughs> to California and I'm there 
for a, you know a couple of weeks, till months. By the way, if somebody is like Amanda Glass, that'd be a Glass isn't a real last name. This is <laughs> yeah. I'd instantly be suspicious. <laughs> so I eventually came back, and and I'm managing. Um, eventually, she comes back too, and I go to. I'm in college now, and I'm I'm in in school, and Lillian is really struggling obviously just grief and fear and there's just a lot going on with her and I come home for Christmas vacation from school and I'm there with her and there were people coming alongside of her to help her she was struggling emotionally and mentally with the the horrifying situation that she's now forced to live and a lot of people coming alongside of her to help and all of them telling me yeah go to school you take care you go to school you know I'd already postponed college for a year so now they're saying now you need to go to school so I do come home for Christmas and um, she attempts suicide and she spends some time in a mental institution and so I don't go back to school when it's time I'm helping with the kids and eventually she comes home and they have her on some medication and everything seems to be like, okay, it's going to be okay. And the adults around, you know, you need to go back to school now. And so late into January, after everybody's been back for a while, I show back up and start classes again. And It was a Saturday morning when I'm in the school, in the dorm room, but pretty much by myself, and the phone rings, and I answer it, and it's my sister, Celia. And she says, Anna, are you alone, or are you with someone? I said, well, I'm alone. And she goes, you need to go get someone. And I said, Lillian's dead, isn't she? Just instantly. I knew. And she goes, go get someone. So I went and found a, one of the girls that was there in the dorm and had her come with me. And she goes, yeah, Lillian committed suicide. And so you need to come. And so my first thought is those kids. I'm like, find out where the kids are. I need to be with those kids. And I'm thinking in my mind, okay, now I'm going to raise these kids. I didn't see another way. Like, who else? Well, you know, Mark and Lillian kind of knew things could happen, and they had made arrangements, and so that responsibility didn't come fall on me. Another family took the kids in and finished raising them, But it was after everything I'd lived through, everything I'd experienced, everything I'd gone through and had just been strong because I had to my entire life. Losing Lillian was finally what broke me. And I remember finally heading back to school and just 
succumbing to this incredible clinical depression that wasn't diagnosed at the time. But when you're sleeping 20 hours a day, barely able to function, can't even find the will to show up for class, do the things that you would normally do. It was just a really, really dark time. And I remember thinking at the time, I'll never be happy again. I just knew it. I felt so numb inside that that was like, oh, this is how it's going to be from now on. And it was so prevalent and so heavy that I just believed it. And I wasn't ever suicidal myself, but there was just nothing left that I couldn't live for. Like, I didn't, it was, all I did was sleep and wake up, eat, go back to sleep. What was your faith like at this point? Were you doubting God or were you doubting Jesus? Were you doubting, like, what was going on spiritually during this? I mean, it wasn't as much of a spiritual doubt or anything. Like, we had known that people could be killed. We knew that that happened. So it was almost like people dying was an expectation. Like you knew it was going to happen. And did your mom know that her children were going to commit these acts? No, they had, like, my father's cult had splintered. My mom was off in one. Some of my siblings, other siblings were here and there. All of it had splintered apart. And it was all the infighting that was taking place after my father died. Like, I was oblivious to it because I was just living my best life with Mark and Lillian in Houston. And all the rest of them are literally killing one another off as to who's going to be the next prophet. And I didn't know about these things until much later when I was reading the books and hearing you know, the stories. And How weird is it to read about your own family in a book? It was so weird. Like, I didn't know I was in a cult. I didn't know that I had escaped the cult when I ran away from home. I had been living with Mark and Lillian for several years when I found a book in Lillian's belongings that had been written about my father called Prophet of Blood. And I'm like, what is this? So I go to my room and I'm reading this book and find out everything that has been happening that I didn't know about. I'm 15, 16 years old, finding out that there are people that are dead that I didn't know they were dead. I mean, because people came and went so often and we were shuffled around so much, we lost track of people a lot. Yeah, there's no Facebook. Yeah, there wasn't anything like that. And nobody, when somebody got killed, you didn't talk about it. And especially the people that did it didn't talk about it. You know, the people that knew and planned knew, but that's it. 
Okay, so you're 20 years old when she commits suicide, right? I think so, yeah. And you're in a really bad spot as far as deeply depressed. You're in school, but I'm sure that's not going well because you're sleeping 20 hours a day. What is the road to recovery? What is the, you know, you're here today. So obviously you broke out of this. You, yeah. you've, you found healing. I, I don't, I'm sure it wasn't even then. I'm sure you found a way to get out. And then after you got out, you found healing. But take me through kind of this, you know, we've gone through a lot, many chapters. Yes. <laughs> take me through this, you know, that's the rock bottom chapter, I would say, yeah, right? This, that definitely is. Take me, take me up the mountain after that. So I had... The year before, like before Mark was killed, when I was still living at their house, I had a like Sandy Patty was coming to con to a con to do a concert in Houston, and I had I had gotten everybody excited about going. Mark and Lillian, I mean Lillian, it was like a girls thing, and Lillian and a bunch of ladies from the church and a bunch of my girlfriends. I had bought the tickets on Mark and Lillian's credit card, and everybody was paying me, and I was arranging the whole thing, and who's gonna do what? And I was so excited. Love Sandy Patty. <laughs> And enjoyed that concert. When I'm in school now, Mark and Lillian are both gone. And the school is arranging a concert to go see Sandy Patty in Dallas now. Because I was in school here right here in Louisville. So they're arranging for all of us to go to Reunion Arena to see Sandy Patty in concert. And I have a ticket because I'm in the school. And I'm like, I'm not going. I didn't have any interest whatsoever. But everybody at the school got a ticket. So... I'm not going, um, I'm living off campus now because I was sleeping so much and needed so much care that I was living off campus. And so a friend of mine, um, I'm at home in bed. It's five o'clock in the afternoon. My friend comes to the door and knocks and I don't know who it is. Um, I'm in bed. I don't, I'm not interested in whatever they, whoever's at the door. She knocks and knocks and knocks and knocks. And I finally just like, what in the world? Why won't they quit knocking? And I go and open the door and it's my friend. Her name is Kelly. And she's like, get dressed. We're going to the concert. And I'm like, no, nah, I'm not, I'm not going. Um, you know, that's how you know you're depressed when things that you were really excited about before no longer have any kind of distraction yeah, like, or draw. Oh, there's a concert. Never mind. I, I'm not going. No, you're coming with me. Come on, get dressed and go. Like, no, I don't really want to go. I'll just be a downer. I don't feel like it. And I'm like, there's nothing about it that I'm interested in dragging myself out of bed. For what? She's like, go get dressed. You're going to come. And she's like doing her best to just be a friend. Like, I can't just let her, you know, die on the bed, you know, lose her interest in life. And she says, like, she's like insistent. You need to come. So go get dressed and, oh, and she's like, and pack your jeans because at the school we weren't allowed to wear jeans. The girls had to wear dresses or culottes. So she goes, well, pack, bring your pair of jeans because after the concert, <laughs> I have off campus permission and we're going to go down to West End and hang out at West End with some of the guys, which was also prohibited. <laughs> so You are a rebel. I mean... <laughs> Bring your jeans. Bring your jeans because we're going to West End after the concert. I have off and campus. And Mel's will be there. There will be boys. <laughs> so I'm just like, no, I don't really want to go. 
leave me alone. I'm just going to go back to bed. No, she's like, get dressed or you're going to the concert in your pajamas. Like, you don't have a choice. You're coming with me. And I'm just like, no, I don't want to go. You need to just go and have fun. She's like, get dressed and let's go. And finally, I realized I wasn't going to win that argument. So I get dressed with my culottes or whatever, pack my jeans, and we go to the concert. I don't remember the concert very much about it because I was just in a fog. So we're leaving the concert, and when you're leaving, you have to go through that the the off out of the parking garage, which. Yep. When, you're, when everybody's leaving at once, it takes 30 minutes to get through that. Bat- no. Well, so, here in Dallas, no one's had to drive. No one knows how to drive. So probably true. eight hours. Eight, I mean, hours. <laughs> so we're in that little ramp circling our way down slowly. And oh. Kelly decides that we're going to change into our jeans in the back of the car before we get on the highway. Because me and her are in the back and our two other friends are in the front. So we're in the back of the car and we've been taught modesty, you know, of course. So I'm like, they're going to see us in the car behind us and their lights. And they're going to wonder what's going on in this car with all of us changing. And My wife is still that way, by the way. <laughs> so we're like changing into our jeans and trying to shimmy our jeans under our skirts and trying to be modest while we're changing. And, and, and just that little, they might see us and we might get caught and we're breaking the rules and all of that combined. Um, In that moment, I felt an adrenaline rush from breaking the rules and changing clothes in the car and what if these people see us? And for a second, I didn't feel dead inside. And in that moment, I just, I took a deep breath and I went, (gasps) oh my gosh, I'll be able to be happy again. I'll be able to experience happiness again. I just got to break more rules. I just got to break the (laughs) rules. (laughs) I mean, it it was such a defining moment that I felt something. And that was the beginning of my way out. I mean, it didn't fix everything, and I still had a long way to go. But I didn't think that I was left to live the rest of my life without any emotion. Yeah. So I want to talk about dating. (laughs) Um, Because you didn't really have a father figure or, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to date someone like your father. You don't want to do that. (laughs) And... You're obviously a great kid. You love kids. Like you have a lot of desirable qualities. So take me through, I mean, you meet somebody and no, no person you're meeting is going to know your background or going to have right. anything similar. So just, I guess, just dive into that a little bit and you can decide where you want to go in on, you know, what phase in life you want to enter that in at. But Well, we'll go back to that little Christian school where, you know, with, by the spring after I started attending there, I had a little boyfriend, right? Yep. That kept me there and settled, you know, rooted in Houston. <laughs> well, 
he and I um, dated all throughout high school. Like we didn't date like in the traditional sense. We were just going together. <laughs> That's what they called it back in the day. <laughs> so we were going together. Mark and Lillian wouldn't Back in me. the mid 2000s, right? <laughs> the 80s. <laughs> just playing. So Mark and Lillian didn't approve of me dating at a young age. And so, so we didn't actually date. When I talked to them about being allowed to date, they said, listen, you guys spend five days a week at school together, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, church, Friday night youth meeting together. You go to summer camp, you go to state conventions, you go to national conventions. Spending pretty much married. Like, <laughs> there's nothing you two have to say to each other that you can't say during one of those times. That was their it's idea. Pretty solid argument. I mean, you couldn't argue with them. <laughs> so we would manage to sneak off and make out, you know, we weren't allowed to, but we did. Like just, oh, <laughs> hello, hormones and teenagers. But, you know, there was, you know, he and I were going together the whole time that I was in school there. Eventually we broke up. I dated other people and had other relationships, but these were people that were part of the church. So they knew what was, they knew the background, they knew stuff. So I didn't have to do any explaining. Oh, so these are other Latter-day Saints? No, no, this oh, okay. is the Christian school. Okay. okay. So eventually, you know, I graduate and at that point, he and I aren't together, the original boyfriend, but there were, during the time that right after Mark got killed and all that was happening, um, Several of the guys from the school, the teenage boys that were becoming men and had jobs and all that, several of them would take turns coming to Lillian's house and just spending the night sitting in a chair awake so that the rest of us could sleep. Like, we'll be here, you guys go sleep. And he was one of them. Like there were several of them that would kind of take turns and just stand guard. These are just 17, 18 year old, 19 yeah. year old guys who just cared. And, you know, during that time, I was, didn't want to sleep up in my room alone. I would sleep on the couch and this boyfriend that wasn't the boyfriend at the time, it was just like a really difficult season. We weren't together. He would stay at the house and he would just sit by the couch and I, ha I could put my arm on him and I would sleep and he would sit next to the couch so I could sleep. I mean, it was just such a difficult time. And after Lillian died and then I kind of felt that spark and came back to feeling like I could live my life again. We reconnected and then got married in December. And you were how old? I turned 21 the next day after we got married. Now, was your concept of marriage still a woman should have a bunch of kids? Because that's what you were like raised in. I wanted to have a bunch of kids. But of course, that's how I was raised. My mom had 12 kids. Mark and Lillian had six kids. I managed all of their kids, so that was doable for me. <laughs> yeah. In my mind, I thought eight was just like a right number. So I yeah. wanted eight kids. Is that how many you want? 
<laughs> and so anyway, so we get married and he's in the Marine Corps. We he gets stationed in Okinawa. And so he's going off to Okinawa and I realized that there's no way I can go to Okinawa because I don't have any p- documents. Like I don't have a passport. Oh. I don't have anything. And I'm like, I had a driver's license just because it was easier to get driver's licenses back <laughs> in the day. Like I'm really, I'm 52 years old. So, <laughs> so I'm trying to figure out like, how am I going to get a passport if I don't have a birth certificate? I don't, I'm not a, I had a Mexican birth certificate cause I was born in Mexico And I'm like, well, I'm married to an American now, so I could get a passport and get U.S. citizenship based on that. But I I finally ended up contacting Congressman Army's office right here in Denton and saying, here's my whole story. Tell them the whole thing. I only have my Mexican birth certificate, but my mom is an American citizen. My father was an American born abroad. My father was born in Mexico, too. So I'm American, but I don't have documents about that. And I need to get a passport and a visa so I can go to Okinawa, Japan and be with my husband. Well, they're like, this is the craziest thing. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) No way is this true. (laughs) Oh my gosh, that's amazing. We have to like, I I say it took an act of Congress, you know, because I had to get a congressman to help me. And finally, they researched the law, and I had to, back in the day before internet, contact the school in Arizona where my mom went to high school. And so I'm calling uncles and aunts and people that have, like, I've never had contact with. Like, we knew they existed. One, one, my uncle came through town once, and we went to a hotel and got to meet him, and it was just, like, really weird you know, but we had been so isolated from our family that I knew my uncle's name was Melvin Martineau and we looked him up and found him and Melvin. How are you looking people up? How does that, how does that work like before the internet? Call 411. Like you had to call. Okay. There was a number you could call and you called information and you used the city's area code. But like you could use the city's area code, call information for that city and look up the name and number and they would look it up in your phone book. So where I'm tracking down my Uncle Melvin and find my Uncle Melvin. Okay, Melvin, where did my mom go to school and where did she go to college and where were her kids born? Because I had to come up with documentation because I had a birth certificate that had my mother's and my father's name on it. It's Mexican birth certificate. So I'm FedExing documents, letters to the the people that keep track of the date, the births and the birth certificates and stuff, trying to get all this information, contacting the school my mom went to high school in, contacting the college, getting her transcripts. And then with all of this documentation that shows that that my mom was an American citizen and all that, I go to the passport agency in Houston. I get on a plane and fly down there. This is very expensive. Back in the day, flights were $400, you know. What? To Houston. So I'm flying, you know, to Houston to go to the passport agency and I show up and here's all my documents in my application for a passport. And they're like, mm, no, this is not enough. You need this, 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 this. They send me home with this list. 
I go back to Congress and Army. They're like, no, we let's go gather more documents so we get more. And then this time, Congressman Army's office sends me with a business card, with his business card, and they flipped it over and wrote a number on the back. And they said, if the passport agency tells you no this time, give them this card and have them call this number. So you got your passport. So I got my passport, (laughs) finally, which having my passport, you know, I walked up into the office that day, bought another $400 ticket, showed up first thing in the morning. So you would go to the airport to buy a plane ticket. Yeah. Yeah. See, that's before my time. (laughs) So you show up and when you buy them last minute, they're more expensive. So I'm like, this is very expensive prospect passport. So I show up first thing in the morning and hand over this big stack of papers to the passport lady. She looks at me and hard rolls her eyes. <sighs> like, All government employees. Like, this, <laughs> this is not your typical passport application. Yeah. So she's gone for hours. The line is behind me. And, you know, she finally comes back and she's like, okay, we're going to issue you the passport. And she looks at me and she goes, listen, this passport's good for 10 years. Do not let this expire. you renew this thing before it expires or you're not going to get another one (laughs) and literally i've kept my passport (laughs) i do not let that thing expire but i was able to then with my passport i'm now a u.s citizen that's my proof of citizenship so i'm official and i can go to okinawa i end up there for a couple of years and have a baby and first son is born over in japan come back to amarillo we live you know, I'm just having, I had five kids eventually in Amarillo and then go from Amarillo and I get a job working for a company and I moved to Austin. What I didn't know when I moved to Austin and I'm living in South Austin was that I had just moved right in the middle of my family that we were all afraid of. What? Why and does the story keep getting crazier? I thought we were past the crazy part. I'm telling you the it's like it's crazy. <laughs> I, I said I'm like you were How like How many we're kids gonna, do you have at this point? I have five kids. Okay, so you have all five. What's the oldest and youngest? At the time? Yeah. Like two to twelve or something like that. There's like a I don't even know. They change it on me every year. <laughs> I can't keep track. So I'm I I'm in Austin working this new job and I go to the grocery store one day I'm at the meat counter I asked the butcher like could I get this much meat and will you slice it and da 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 he comes back the meat's not sliced so I was like oh remember I was like I wanted it sliced (laughs) and he grins like he smiles because he he remembered I was supposed to be supposed to be sliced and he's like oh yeah that's right I looked at his teeth and I looked at him and I said your name is Harvey isn't it and he goes white and he's like, you're, you're, I'm like, I'm Anna. I mean, we had been playmates as kids, hadn't seen each other in decades since we were kids. And here I am, five kids and grown adult. And I recognize him because of his teeth, because he had very distinct pattern of his teeth, how they were shaped. And he had changed his name 
years and years ago, and he was going by Steve. And his little name tag was tucked inside of his apron, so I didn't see it. And so when I called him by his name, it was like it was a name he hadn't heard in a long time. And it was at that moment that I realized, like, oh, my God. All of these people that I am deathly afraid of, he's connected to them somehow. Like, I'm, I know there's, like, connections there, and I'm shaking, like, oh, my gosh. Yeah. We're still afraid. And he's like, well, have you talked to Rena? And Rena was Mark's sister and had been married to my dad at one point. And I knew Rena was a good person. So when he mentioned Rena, I was like, okay, it's going to be okay. <laughs> Rena's fine. Rena's a good person. So I said, no, I haven't talked to her. And he's like, here, let me give you your phone number. So I called Rena and we connect. And I realized that because Rena was the one who, when everybody got arrested way back, went to jail, all these younger siblings and their kids, babies having babies, all these kids were left with no adults, none. They were in Mexico, and none of the adults came back. So there's teenage girls with a bunch of kids and no adults. Well, eventually, one of the investigators from Houston that had been investigating all of that realized that there were kids, like, there's kids in Mexico. So he figures out a way to get there and find them. And he finds them and brings them back to the United States. And Rena takes them all in. And there's a bunch of them. And so they go live in down there in central Austin. And, I mean, central Texas, where that's where they're all at. And then I go right and move and right in the big middle of them. And I am literally scared of them, scared spitless of them. Like, what have I done? I didn't know they lived there. Yeah. So Rena invites me to come to the Christmas get-together. They're mostly grown now, and because we've all been, like, it's been years. Like, they're mostly grown, and these are my siblings that I'm afraid of. She invites me to the Christmas party, and... I make excuses why I can't come. This is our busy season. And <laughs> yeah. I can't come. I'm sorry. I'll try to come, but... Five little ones. It's tough. <laughs> I mean, so I don't end up going to the Christmas one. Then later in July, they have a 4th of July get-together again. They all get together two times a year. They're all grown up and spread out, and they all come back. So she invites me to the 4th of July party, and I'm like, okay. And I'm thinking in my head... They all know I'm here, and if they wanted me dead, they could have already taken me out. So the odds are probably in my favor. I probably would be okay. But there's that doubt. Yeah. For good reason. So I show up at this um, party on 4th of July, and I pull up, and my husband's with me at the time, and the kids, and I'm thinking he's a Marine, former Marine. He Once could, a Marine, always a Marine. He can take him out if, if he needs to, you know, if it comes down to that, you know. Literally, I'm having those thoughts pulling up to the house. Well, all my siblings are inside the house, opening, cracking the window, like, she's coming, she's going to come. Like, we've not seen each other in decades. Yeah. 
she's here, she's here. And they're all saying, everybody act normal, don't scare her away. Because they had been like, like, so isolated from their family. And knew that there was no chance that we were going to trust them. Knew. And the fact that I was willing to, and I showed up that day, and like saw my sisters grown. We hadn't seen each other since we were kids. And we're all grown up now. And we're meeting again for the very first time. Prior to moving to Austin, I'd been living in Amarillo, having a bunch of kids. And I ended up, long story, I don't know how much time we have left. but All the time in the world. I ended up, while we were living in Amarillo, coming to Dallas for a wedding for um, one of Mark and Lillian's children. She was getting married, and of course I'm going to be there at the wedding. And Because Rena had custody of all these kids, she had brought some... Some people, she'd come to the wedding because that's her niece. You know, this is Mark's sister and this is Mark's daughter getting married. So she had brought, come to the wedding and brought kids that were my brother Heber's children that I'd never met. I hadn't seen Heber since I was a kid. And here he has kids. And and these little eight, nine, ten-year-old kids are here at the wedding and I'm, and I know Rena's a good person and I know that she can be trusted. So... She's introducing me to these to Heber's children, and I'm like, "Wow, I didn't know he even had kids, or maybe I did, and I just didn't like." Yeah. Just so we were so isolated from one another, and it was a happy time at that wedding, seeing the kids and meeting them, and I wanted to get pictures with them because it was like these are my nieces and nephews. Well, I didn't get home from that wedding, and that night I have a nightmare and I'm in my nightmare a brown van pulls up to my house and it's my siblings in the van that get out guns blazing shoot me I fall down and in my dream in the nightmare I think to myself if I pretend I'm dead they won't shoot me again and I can go see if my kids are okay but just pretend you're dead So in my nightmare, I'm just pretending. And then, of course, I wake up, and it's a nightmare, and I'm drenched in sweat, and it's just been... I didn't realize that nightmare was a trigger. The wedding was a trigger that brought up this memory. And I had this nightmare. So the next day, I was had a play date with a friend of mine and her children. She had three boys. I had three boys at the time. They're playing in the park, and... I'm telling her about this nightmare, and I don't talk about my family of origin very much to anybody at this point. For good reason. (laughs) So I'm telling her I had this nightmare and explaining it to her, like what those things mean and, you know, why I would have a nightmare like that. And she looks at me and she says, at your church, do they have like um, lay ministry counseling? And I said, no, I don't think they do. And she goes, well, at my church, they have it. If I make you an appointment, will you go? And I'm like, sure. <laughs> like, I don't know why I have to go to counseling for a, a dream, you know, like a night. I mean, I had a nightmare. Like, My what's life the isn't big all that deal? Crazy. <laughs> what's the big deal? And then she says, Do you need me to watch your boys while you're there, or do you need me to drive you? 
she intended for me to make that appointment <laughs> to go. So I go to this appointment, and for the first time in my life, I'm telling a perfect stranger, like my whole story front to back, in an hour. Like, how long have we been here <laughs> yeah. now? I have an hour to get the whole thing in and what this nightmare means and what it's based on. And at the end of that hour, she is very kind. I don't know her name. I don't know which church it was. I hope that one day I could like find her and tell her thank you. But at the end of that hour, she slips a card over the desk to me and says, um, the kind of help that you need is more than I can offer you here. And so I'm going to you know, recommend that you go to Samaritan Pastoral Counseling Ministries and they work on a sliding scale and they'll get you the kind of professional counseling that you need. And I'm still confused in my mind, like, what is the big deal? <laughs> like, really? <laughs> wow. And so I make an appointment, and the lady's name is Joy. And I show up at her office, and that was um, 1995. And I'm, she asks me, like, probably every counseling session starts, tell me about your relationship with your dad. Yeah. That's just a big starting point for just about anybody. <laughs> so my answer at the time was, he was never around and we dealt with it. Like pragmatic, matter of fact, wow. no emotion. I met him twice in my life. Like I didn't have a relationship with him. So end of story. Yeah. And I'm putting words in her mouth by saying this, but I'm sure she was sitting across from me going, oh boy, we have a lot of work to do. (laughs) (laughs) So I spent five years in counseling with Joy Cox in Amarillo. And, and it was, it was right before, like after that, it took me five years. She did it. She called it peeling back the layers of an onion. Like when I talked about my family of origin, it was just very matter of fact. This is what happened. No emotion attached to it. Nothing that you've experienced today with the crying and the tears <laughs> and the <laughs> tissue. And <laughs> Which is a good sign of healing. Yeah. So, But at the time, I didn't have any of that emotion. I didn't have access to any of that emotion. Uh-huh. Brene Brown, who I love now, um, says, you cannot selectively numb your emotions. If you numb the negative ones, you're also numbing the positive ones. And so I had just numbed everything because I didn't know how to access emotion without feeling overwhelmed by it. And so we talked, and one time I remember the first time I cried in her office, and I'm thinking, oh, oh my gosh, I'm losing control. And I just let one little tear slip, and, and I would find reasons not to go back and cancel my appointments, and then finally I'd make an appointment back, and cry a little bit more and shove it all down again and try to keep that tightly locked down just because it was so much buried there. No pun intended. Eventually, she it was just through her kindness, through her patience, through her care and her very presence, I eventually unlocked that well of grief that was just like buried and and the depths of it. I thought that when I finally, like the dam was undone and it flowed out, 
I just thought I'll never stop crying. And I just cried and cried and cried and cried and cried for hours in her office over and over again. And and I would leave her office and like good counselors will try to, you know, kind of get you back to a neutral <laughs> emotional yeah. state before they let you go. And, and there would be times when there was just not possible and I would leave and I would try to drive home and have to pull over on the side of the road because I was crying so much still that I just couldn't stop the tears. Yeah, It was gut-wrenching. Like I would have my appointments on Thursday and then spend Friday, Saturday, and Sunday trying to recover. And then Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday dreading Thursday. What are the conversations at home about this? Are you, you know, like... Uh, <laughs> I mean, I don't know. It's just, I didn't know how to have these conversations with people. It was so foreign to me to express this emotion when all I had ever done my whole life was talk pragmatically about my family. Yeah. And so it took five years before that uh, well, just the, the dam broke and, and I was sobbing and weeping uh, like for everything and everyone. I mean, it was just so overwhelming. And that went on for months. And Joy tells me, she says, this kind of work is really emotionally taxing and it drains you physically. So just do the bare minimum with your kids and say no to everything and don't volunteer for anything. And you just take do this work. This is your work now. And I did for months. Just that's all I did. And one day I went into her office and I was just like, ah, I don't feel like I have to cry anymore. Like the sun is shining and I can hear the birds singing and my heart feels light. And I don't, I feel like I don't have to cry anymore. And she goes, okay, now you can go live in your skin. Those were her words. Wow. And then before I left, one of the recurring themes during the whole counseling, five years of counseling, one of the recurring themes was, there's never enough, there's never enough time, there's never enough food, there's never enough money. When you have five kids and your husband is in the military and we're living on below the poverty level, you know, with, you know, and I'm just determined that I'm going to raise my kids and stay home with them. So, so my, my mom, uh, I'm the youngest of four and my dad uh, was the only person that worked. Mom stayed home. Um, and my dad worked at church and make a lot of money. So I, he was, so I, I, I recognize this. I didn't see my dad a lot because it's like, he was any side gig, anything you do just to be able to provide more for our family he did. And yeah. so, so I, I can reason with that a lot of, of understanding that because I've talked to my mom a lot about that. Yeah. Um, and so the, that recurring theme of there's never enough, um, time and energy and food and money and whatever. And it was just like a, a whole, um, a whole situation where the frame of mind that I looked at life through was from a scarcity point of view. And one of the things that she said to me during that one of those last visits with her was she said, look for God's abundance. And I had no idea what she was talking about. <laughs> <laughs> you just thought it was one of those feel good lines. Like just, okay, <laughs> fine, whatever. Okay. I feel yeah. better. Thank you. Bye. And it was right after that that I moved to Central Texas. 
and connected with my family. Wow. Like it was almost like it was divinely appointed time. Yeah. Like it, I had gone through five years of therapy and now it's, I can go and reconnect with my family. So you've had the therapy, you've reconnected with the family, you have a family, a big family now. Where does, I should share this story. When does that start to come into play? When does I'm going to write a book start to come into play? <laughs> Tell me about this nets, you know, cause that's kind of, uh, one thing is recognizing something. The other thing is like, I'm going to write it and share it for the world and then speak on it and, right. and everything else. Well, when we lived in Amarillo, I had been part of, um, my kid's dad and I were struggling with our marriage. So we ended up actually divorced and then reconciling. And during that time, we ended up going to a program called Celebrate Recovery, both of us. He was on the men's side, I was on the women's side, and we were trying to patch our marriage back together. And it was just a whole a whole thing, a whole level of difficulty that, you know, on top of everything else in my whole life. So I ended up in Celebrate Recovery and go went through those steps. And when you complete the steps, you know, they, they offer you the opportunity to tell your story. And so I was like, okay, okay. And knew the day was coming that I was going to share my story. And they're very like intuitive and perceptive. And they said, everybody that's going to share gets to decide, do they want to be in the pulpit or do they want to stand with a little music stand or do they want to sit? How do you want the chairs arranged? It's like, whatever's going to be the most comfortable for you. And I was like, well, for sure, have the chairs. I want to be sitting down. (laughs) And I had written out my story, painstakingly written out, like, I don't have four hours with these people. I need to, like, narrow it down. And and I literally sat there that day and told my story for the first time to a group of people. Now it's not just the counselor. Now it's a whole group. And sobbed my way through it. Because by that time I had been through this counseling and I had access to that emotion and I sobbed my way through it and cried and cried, went through a whole box of Kleenex. Everybody's crying. You know, the whole thing is just (laughs) horrifying and sad, but I shared it and I always kind of knew that I wanted to tell my story because you know, you go to a church and they have all these inspirational speakers and you go to women's retreats and these people tell their story and <laughs> it's so impactful and it impacts you. And and I always just saw myself like, I could do that. I could share my story and, and inspire people and help people. And so I had this idea in my mind that I wanted to do it, but like, where do you even start? Well, then we moved to Austin the church that I attended there, they kind of heard about my background and said, would you share your testimony at the women's thing? You know, and I was like, okay. <laughs> so I take out that document that I had written for the Celebrate Recovery group and polish it up a little bit. And then I stand in front of this group of women and sob my way through telling my story again, you know, in a very kind audience. And so it was, it was, it made it easier that I knew the faces there. <clears throat> And then we moved to Dallas and a friend of mine from Amarillo that we had stayed friends, she was part of a ministry that called Stonecraft Ministries where they get together through luncheons and invite people to share their story and share the gospel. And 
and she was doing a speaker training. So she was thinking, who do I know that has a story? And then, of course, I come to mind. So she flies me to Amarillo so I can go through speaker training. And I began in 2007 um, telling my story publicly at these events. And every time at the end of the event, the, as I'm greeting the people as they're leaving, they're like, do you have a book? Have you written a book? Will you write a book? <laughs> I'm working a full-time job. I have five kids. And what's your job? I was working in, in a, for an air charter company that uh, moved automotive parts. So it was a cargo charter business. Now, were you pretty good at it due to your like being... Yeah. Like... Uh, <laughs> I speak fluent uh, Spanish and we flew <laughs> auto parts into and out of Mexico every day. So uh, I, I did that 17 years. Wow. It was It was a really good career for me. And so... I'm saying, did your experience as a kid running this, the store? Oh, yeah. yeah, for sure. For sure. Just being able to talk, problem solve and talk to people and all <laughs> that was part of it. So um, so I started in 2007 um, sharing my story publicly. And they would say, do you, have, do you have a book? Do you have a book? Do you have you written a book? And I'm like, in all my spare time, I'm going to write a book. <laughs> yeah. You know. So in 2007, I started really thinking I need to... At some point, I need to write a book and just tell the story. Tell all of it because 25 minutes that they allot you isn't enough at all. So um, it was in 2012, we lost a really close family friend in a very tragic circumstances that he was in the hospital for two weeks on life support. And then we lost him and that triggered so much grief for me, like from the past. And I began grieving all over again for my friend and for the past. So I ended up in counseling again. <laughs> Thankfully, the lady that I ended up seeing by just happenstance, she specializes in post-traumatic stress. And I had been seeing her for about a year after that because when I went to see her, I was just like, I need, just need crisis counseling. I need, my friend died and I just can't stop crying about it and can you help me through this? She goes, okay, let's just make you a few appointments. And then I just never stopped seeing her. When I finally got to that point in my life and, and was seeing her and she was helping me like unpack lots of ways in which my life wasn't working that was affected by my upbringing. And I didn't even realize what she was doing. I just kept showing up because it was helpful and she was, it was working and the counseling was working, so I kept showing up. And then in January of 2014, I had been seeing her for just over a year. I had, I was scrolling on Facebook, because now we have Facebook, <laughs> right? Okay, I'm in the modern age now. Um, I'm scrolling on Facebook, and an acquaintance of mine had posted this thing about a seminar called Release the Writer. And I had tried <laughs> to write my book uh, a number of times where you write the first sentence and then you're stuck, you know, yeah. a number of times. So I see this and she's like, if you come and if you engage in this process and I'm like, I'm gonna, I'll do it. I'll engage. <laughs> You'll leave here with a working title and chapter titles and this and that and the other and all these deliverables. I need that. <laughs> and I'm, and it's December and this is happening right in the January. And I'm like, I don't care how much this costs, I'm going. Yeah. So I show up and go through the process, engage in the process, and I leave there literally with everything she said. 
and I'm like, okay, oh my God, I'm going to actually write the book now. <laughs> so I go to my next counseling appointment with this, with Tiffany this time. And I said, Tiffany, it's January and they've given me a year to write my book. And that's kind of the timeline that they, they come up with to help you kind of manage it. And I said, they're giving me a year, but I don't want to use up all my counseling sessions right at the beginning. But for sure, I'm going to need you this year. So how many appointments do I get with my insurance? And she says to me, well, with your diagnosis, there's no limit. And I'm like, um, well, what's my diagnosis? Well, do I really want to know? Is this a need to know basis? You know, I have a diagnosis. I have a diagnosis. What? You know, and, and she goes, well, you experience anxiety that's triggered by post-traumatic stress. And I was like, what? And I was so confused because in my head, post-traumatic stress was what soldiers got when they would go off to yeah. war and see their buddies die and then come back and life doesn't make sense after that. And as soon as that thought came to me, I went, oh, Oh, that makes so much sense. That post-traumatic stress would be the diagnosis. And so it's 2014. Like, I'm a grown woman who's had a career, kids, <laughs> teenagers now, the whole nine. And I'm... 2014, I finally have like, oh, that's what it is. That's what I've been experiencing my entire life. Yeah. Wow. And it was like the heavens parted and I could see the sun for the first time. I... It never occurred to me that that I had anything wrong with me. The only, my only clue was in, it was like 2006. I was still with my kid's dad at the time. I had, he had gone into Home Depot for something, and I have no desire to walk around Home Depot. So I sat in the car, and I was cleaning out the glove box, and I was going to throw away this map of Austin because we didn't live there anymore that was in the glove box. And I was like, but what if I need it? And, <laughs> and I literally had a panic attack. Oh, wow. Sitting in the car. My palms were sweaty. My heart was racing. My, my pits were sweaty. I mean, it was like I was shaking and it was like, what in the world is <laughs> this? Why am I like, whoa, this is so weird. Why am I yeah. reacting like this about a map? It was just the weirdest thing. And that was like my only clue that there was something happening. And then in 2014, so like how many years later, she says, anxiety that's triggered by post-traumatic stress. And it was for the first time that I went, ah, oh, okay, now we can like do something. Like now that I know what it is, then you can study and read and 
go online and yeah. read articles about <laughs> it and try to make do sense something. of your yeah. life and like, oh, this is how this is how you do it. This is, you know, cause she had been teaching me tools all along, you know, how to manage, how to breathe and all the things that, that you do to manage post-traumatic stress. And this was a revelation to me and was a game changer that it's like people don't talk about it. I nobody had talked about it in a way that made it connect in my mind that this is what my ha- this is what's yeah. happening to me. And then when she said those words, it was like, oh, all of a sudden I had access to this whole different way of engaging with my own inner self in a way that was very helpful and meaningful and allowed me to heal more and grow more and to express emotion more. But just, and then I started reading Brene Brown, The Gifts of Imperfection. You know, I thought it was just me. And then, of course, the Daring Greatly book. That just, that was a game changer. Talking about uh, shame and vulnerability. And it was reading that book that allowed me to like take off that cloak of shame about my family of origin that that I had worn like I'm Ervil Baron's daughter I need to like make myself small and not take up too much space in the world you know yeah so you have this breakthrough where you're there's nothing you nothing holding you back from accomplishing pretty much anything, but especially the book, right? Like you've, you've been to the counseling, you've, you've recognized everything. You're, you're reading the right books, you're doing the right things. So it's time to write your book. What, what happens? Well, I left that conference in January of 2014. Like I didn't know where to start. I had started, like tried to start so many times and it was like, where do you even start with the story? It's so gigantic. Where do you start? Well, while I was at the conference, they said, <clears throat> write 250 words a day, four days a week for 50 weeks, and you'll have yourself a first draft of a manuscript. That was their prescribed. And then I didn't know what 250 words was. It seemed like a lot to me. So that was Saturday night. Sunday morning, I wake up and I think, okay, I'm going to start on Monday. You know, I'm going to get my 250 words. <laughs> and this voice, this prompt that was spirit says start today and I'm like what like I'm not ready for that yet (laughs) tomorrow I'll be ready but not today no and this and I was like it's six o'clock in the morning my roommate's not even awake I don't want to wake her up I don't know where my laptop is and immediately I have a picture in my mind of where I set my laptop the night before and I was like okay I hear you. Yeah. <laughs> so I get up and I find my laptop exactly where I pictured it in my mind. I sneak out of the room and go to the common area. As I'm walking to the common area, I remember that I writ- had written a blog the year before. And in that blog, I had talked about my childhood. And so I came up with this genius idea that if I just copied and pasted this blog into this Word document that I had on my computer already with the working title (laughs) of my book, because that's what she said would happen. And I did. I was like, if I copy and paste that blog into here, 
there's my first 250 words <laughs> yeah. and I'm done for the day. I'm going to cheat my way through yeah. the first step, you know? And so I did, I went and found my blog and copied and pasted my blog that I had just like typed it out like fast type, 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 hit publish. And then you go, Oh, I have error, error. I got to edit, edit, edit before anybody reads it, you know? Yeah. And then that's how fan, you know, how fancy my blogging was. So I copied and pasted. That's still how I blog. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) so I copied and pasted it and I looked at the word count because I'd never looked at that before in my life. I didn't know what 250 words was. And this blog that I had just typed out and hit publish and was like 1,400 words. And I was like, oh my gosh, I can do this. For the first time, it felt doable to me. Because if I could just blog 1,400 words without any difficulty, I could do 250 words a day yeah. and write this book. So at that point, I said, well, this blog has stuff that has to do with my current life. And so I'm going to delete everything about my current life and just leave that one story I told from my childhood. And I'll leave that in, the, in there. And that's going to be my first entry. So I deleted everything else, left that one story and it was over 400 words. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is so doable. And the, the image that came to me that weekend was the story of, I think it was Ezekiel, where he, God takes him to the valley of bones, the dry bones. Mm-hmm. And he's like, prophesy to these bones and tell them to live. And Ezekiel's like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and so he prophesies and the bones get up in the bones, flesh and sinew and, you know, comes on them and then he prophesies and then they live, you know, and it was like in my mind, each of my childhood stories that I had told stories all my life, this little thing here, that playing cars and this and games and board, you know, whatever we were talking about, I knew that if I just put the bones of my story, each little bone is a story that I could write my book bone by bone. And that's what I did. So you would just sit down and remember a story from your childhood mm-hmm. and write it down. And write it down. And then before you knew it, you had how many uh, pages? My plan was four days a week, 250 words a day, to have it by the end of the year. By about March, I had like 40,000 words. Wow. Once I started, and once it became doable for me, and once... I realized that each bone, all I had to do was just each memory that came to me would be written down. It just flowed like it, the, the dam broke and I couldn't stop writing. And so around March, 40,000 words, that was a lot of writing. Yeah. I met, okay, so let me back up just a little bit. Okay. So... A friend of mine went to a bloggers conference. I mean, I should have been there. I was a blogger, you know. <laughs> she goes to this bloggers conference, and there's a lady on the panel talking, and she's she's a literary agent. So my friend goes up to her after it. She kind of just sides up to her and says, "I have a friend who you know was born in polygamy and she escaped the cult and blah blah blah." And she has a story. And the literary agent said, "Tell your friend to contact me," and. So my friend gets the card and then 
promptly loses it. <laughs> but she comes home real excited. I met a literary agent and she wants you to call her. And I'm like, what's her name? I don't know. The card is missing. And I'm like, okay, well, I wasn't quite ready for that whole life. So I was like, okay, well, just whenever you find the card, let me know and I'll call her. Well, months later, I'd forgotten all about it. We go and we meet for, we're going to meet for lunch. And that morning I had finished reading Brene Brown's book and I had posted a blog that was my most vulnerable blog I'd ever written in my whole life. And I thought, this is crazy. What I just wrote was crazy, talking this vulnerably about my stuff. So I didn't hit publish. I just wrote the blog. I printed it out and I was going to take it to my friend and say, read this and tell me if I'm crazy. Should I hit publish on this? But I'd already kind of knew that if she said yes, I was going to. So she reads it and she's like, oh no, this is crazy, but it's good. And I was like, okay, as soon as I get home, I'll hit publish. Well, we, we were getting into her car because we had been walking before lunch. She gets back into her car. She's digging around in the backseat of her car to change her shoes. And she finds the card. Wow. So you just kind of have this God's timing thing. Mm -hmm. Like if I had not been willing to be vulnerable, to tell my story in the way that, that really lets the reader see my heart, it just wasn't the right time yet. And I wasn't... I don't feel like God was ever going to say, just rip the Band-Aid off and say this. Like It was like, when you are ready, when you have healed enough, when it's the right time and you won't be re-traumatized, that's when it's time. So when does the book get published? 2017. It's almost four years to the day. Yeah, I saw it was March 18th. March 21st. March 21st. Ah, dang it. Yeah. I was like, I remember because I looked up and I was getting it. March um, 17th, we had our lunch party though. Okay. So it was four <laughs> years ago. <laughs> um, and what is what has the last four years been like? What has it opened up? You know, like what are you, you know, obviously you do more than the book. Are you now helping people write their books? Um, like yeah. just, you know, this is full. You can do self-promotion, you do whatever. But I just want to know, like... We've all led up to the book being published, mm -hmm. which is out now and free on Audible. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, Audible Plus. It's free. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah, tell me tell me the last four years, what that's been like since it's come out. Well, I had this to go back five years. Okay. Because all that time I was writing, you have to write a book proposal. Because once I finally met my agent, she was like, you need to write a book proposal. And, and it ended up being that lady that was on stage? Yes. Oh, okay. And it was her. <laughs> I finally called her and... And then she goes, okay, I want to hear your whole story. So let's set a time to talk when I have time. And so she goes, I want to hear your whole story front to back. <laughs> so literally I was on the phone with her like three hours telling her everything. And then she said to me at the end of that, like, I believe in your story. And if we can't find a publisher for it, then I will help you self-publish. I was like, oh my God, this is getting done one way or another. Yeah. <laughs> like I'm on the hook now. And so... So I got my sample chapters written. I got my book proposal written and I ended up hiring. She told me I only had this little blogging experience. That was it. No real writing. So she said, you need to hire a professional editor to work with you or else I won't work with you. So I hired a professional editor. <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> and so I got my sample chapters written and 
book proposal written, which took a long time. It's like you would not think it would take that much time. A book proposal is like a whole nother book. And so the day I turned in. How many pages in, is it? Like 30, 40 pages. Oh, man. So but, it's it's almost like a, like a final essay for a grade almost. Like it's, <laughs> you have to have a marketing plan. You have to have this. You have it's to have. a business plan, but other, for your book. Like a business plan for your book. Okay. Yeah. And so she had written others and helped people. So I, she helped me with mine. I turned it in to the agent and the, like I had already, my agent had already said to me, authors have to sell their own books. So you need to learn how to market books. Well, I'd been in marketing and sales for, since I was nine years old, selling cakes door to door in Mexico. We didn't even talk about that. I've been in sales for, since I was nine. So I was like, I can, I got this. (laughs) Sales. Okay. I'll figure out how to sell Some people are scared of cold calling. (laughs) Yeah. Like whatever. (laughs) So I started buying books because that's what I do when I need to learn anything. I just buy books and learn. So I was buying books about book sales and how do you do it. And, and I was learning and, gr- and heard about this thing called a launch team for a book. I was like, what in the world? Like, what is that even? And so I had turned in my manuscript. And then the, like the next, that day, an author named Jen Hatmaker posted on her Facebook page, I need a launch team for my book. It's coming out in 2015. <laughs> yeah, it was 2015. It's coming out. Um, I need a launch team for my book. This is March. And she's like, apply here. We have 500 spots. I'm like, okay, this is going to be my chance to see what happens on a launch team. So I'm going to apply. I didn't know. I just knew she was funny. She blogged. She had a blog <laughs> and it was super funny. So I'm like, okay, if whatever she's book is about it's going to be funny too and I'm thinking it's her first book because I don't know that she's already an author well I applied to join the launch team and about three days later I get an email from her publisher that says we're so sorry Um, we had 5,000 people apply for 500 spots and you weren't picked here's four sample chapters that you can read. We hope you'll buy the book. You know, we hope you enjoy these and thank you, thank you. No, little note from Jen. So I read the four chapters and I go on Twitter, uh, which I had used maybe twice in my whole life. <laughs> so I go on Twitter and I'm like, Jen Hatmaker, I'm one of hashtag the 4500, because that's how many of us got the email, that got a tasty morsel of hashtag for the love to devour in advance. She's a foodie, so I was using foodie words, basically telling her thank you for the chapters, even though I didn't get picked. Well, she replied to my tweet and hashtagged the 4500. And that hashtag went viral on her Twitter feed with all these other people saying, me too, me too, me too. A different me too than the one that's right now. (laughs) I didn't get picked either. I'm so sad, blah, blah, blah. A girl that I didn't know at the time created a Facebook group called hashtag the (laughs) 4500 and was inviting people to join this group. And I'm like, well... That's kind of my hashtag. So I'm going to join the group and just like, whatever, we'll go commiserate that we didn't make the team and we don't get the book and, you know, we're not the 500. And everybody put their email so I can email them when my book comes out. (laughs) I wasn't thinking that, but I, but I was like, I, you know, I, I just didn't know what was happening. Yeah. So I joined this Facebook group and because it was my hashtag, this lady lets me co-admin with her, this group. And because of how I'm hardwired from the factory, like one of my strengths on the strengths finder is includer top five. I just went into the highways and byways of the internet, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever, 
everybody that said me too. I was like, here's a link to join this Facebook group. We're over here. Come and join us. Like nobody had any idea what was happening. I was just like going with the moment and we're over there. And I know about three things about launching a book because I've been studying and learning. And my friend, the one that introduced me to the agent had been on a launch team before for one of her favorite authors. And she was bossing me around. She's inside this private exclusive Facebook group with the author (laughs) and telling me, go pre-order the book. And then when the book comes in the mail, take a picture of yourself holding the book, put it on your socials, hashtag this, <laughs> da, da, da. She's giving me all these instructions. And I'm just, because she's my very best friend, when she says jump, you ask how high on the way up. And then I'm starting a book club. Everybody's going to read the book. Everybody's buying the book. So these were the things I knew about book launches was what I had followed my friend's orders about. Yeah. So we're in this group. And 1,300 women joined the group. And I'm in there like, I know three things about book launching. (laughs) So I just said, well, Jen Hatmaker is not the boss of us. We can launch this book if we want to. We have four chapters to read. We'll quote our favorite quotes. This is what you do. We'll take the quote graphics from her page and share those and this is what you do when you're part of a launch team so I'm like rogue going rogue on Jen and saying we can do this like and then we can find the 500 who have the whole book to quote from (laughs) and because they're going to hashtag everything for the love you just click on the hashtag and there you go all their stuff yeah so I'm like let's find the 500 we'll share everything they share because they have the whole book and this started in March. The book didn't come out till August. And so for six months or so, we were just on fire. (laughs) And those 1300 women that joined that group, and we were like the, this ragtag B list. We didn't make the team. (laughs) We're sitting on the bench, you know, and we're just kind of which is so funny because it seems like you would want as many people as possible promoting your book. Well, that's how it is now. Yeah. <laughs> well, so we're on that group and I'm over here just saying, Jen's not the boss of us. We can do whatever we want. And here's what you do. And, and then like a week into it, Jen joins the group and I'm thinking, Oh snap. Yeah. I'm in trouble. <laughs> Cause I'm kind of the ringleader of the whole thing. <laughs> And then she's like, oh my gosh, you guys are hilarious and this is funny and nobody's ever done anything like this before and you guys are the to talk at Thomas Nelson, her publisher. You're the talk of the water, at the water cooler because this has never happened before. And I'm like, oh, okay, this is fun. <laughs> oh, this is way better than I thought. Well, then uh, two of the pu- publicity people get put in the group and I'm thinking, okay, now I'm in trouble. <laughs> like, So I'm private messaging these two publicists. I'm like, what else should I be doing? Am I doing anything wrong? Just give me some direction and I'll do whatever you say. Cause now I'm like, I gotta. Yeah. (laughs) It's like a job at this point. (laughs) They're, they're watching me (laughs) and I don't know what I'm doing. I just know three things. And so they were like, Oh no, no, no. Just keep doing what you're doing. And I'm like, okay, carte blanche. Okay. All right. So we just like, I love social media. 
I'm a social media expert now <laughs> and algorithms, all that. It's like, that's what I do. But at the time, I didn't recognize that that was something that I understood intuitively. And so intuitively, I'm just telling them what to do. And I'll see Jen post something and I'll say, okay, go share this. And here's the link and go on Twitter <laughs> yeah. and retweet You're just this. making things happen. I'm just m- making it up as I go. Like, go and do this and go and do And then we're all just 1,300 people having a nonstop party in that group. Like, we're just friends now. All of us are friends now. <laughs> and Jen's book comes out number two on the New York Times bestseller list. Wow. This is like her 10th book or 8th or ninth or something. First New York Times bestseller. And I didn't recognize at the time that what I had done was part of the fuel that launched it to the New York Times bestseller list. But eventually I came to like go, oh, that was helpful to her. Well, the book is launched and we're having meetups and we're planning women's retreats with all of us. And so we can meet (laughs) each other because we're scattered all over the United States. And so we're just having fun in this group now. We've launched the book and now what, you know? Well, Remember I told you I met somebody on Twitter? Yeah. Okay. So I'm sitting here. I don't have a book contract yet. I'm just having fun on Facebook with this group. And I'm doing my quiet time one day. And this voice whispers to me, like not audibly. And just was like, start your launch team. Call it the 4,500 launches. And... Um, promote and help other first-time authors while you're waiting for your turn. And I'm like, what? (laughs) Like, that's so weird. Okay. So I create a Facebook group called it hashtag the 4,500 launches. And in my mind, it was, there was going to be, I was going to launch 4,500 books. And that my number, my book would be one of those numbers eventually. And so, because the voice, like, the thing that I heard was, while you're waiting for your turn. So I'm like, oh, so I get a turn. (laughs) Okay, this is is a good deal. Okay, no problem. This was so much fun that I was like, oh, okay, I'll do this. And then for like a week, I walked around going, how do you like find a new author and say, let me help you launch your book? Like, how does that even happen? Like, I didn't have a clue what to, how to think about it, what to even try. I mean, I was like in a weird space for like a week. And then one day I'm on Twitter, now that Twitter and I are good friends, you know, it's been good to me. (laughs) I'm on Twitter scrolling and I see a publicist that has posted about a book and said, you know, new memoir, Uh, January 2016, so this is like October, you know, January 2016, uh, must read, and I like memoir, so I'm, and Stephen King says in his book on writing, whatever you're going to write about, read a lot of that. Yeah. So I'm like, okay, I'm in. So I tweet the author, I can't wait to read your book. Do you already have a launch team? And I'm thinking it's October Surely there's a launch team already formed. And when you're part of a launch team, you get to read the book in advance. So I'm over there. Like I might get to read this memoir in advance (laughs) and be part of the launch team. Well, I didn't hear back from the author. 
for a couple of days. But in the meantime, later that afternoon, I see another tweet from this publicist that said, here's a review on this book and um, must read 2016, you know, and I'm like, oh, well, I've already offered to promote it. I should go see if it's any good. So I click on the link. I go to the Goodreads and I'm reading this review of this book called The Sound of Gravel. I have no idea what it's about, who the author is, nothing. I read the review and I'm like, okay, it's a good book, according to this reviewer. And then I read a comment. So I'm knee deep in Goodreads. And this comment said, I've read a lot of books about polygamy. This is one of the great ones. And I'm thinking, what? This book is about polygamy? I wonder which <laughs> polygamous group she was born in and raised in and all that. So I scurry back to her Twitter, click on her link to her you know, website, and there on her history page, I'm scrolling, and there's a picture of my Uncle Joel. What? And I keep scrolling, and there's my father's mugshot. The author of this book was Joel's daughter. And I was stunned, and immediately my heart was like, <gasps> what have I done? I've tweeted her publicly. She's Joel's daughter, and we're not allowed to talk to them. <laughs> and so I tweeted her again, because, you know, what's worse than one tweet, but two. <laughs> so I tweeted her again, and I said, Fearless. Ruth, I did not know we were related when I tweeted you the first time, because um, her name is Ruth Warner. I didn't know that name. Yeah. Said, I escaped my father's cult when I was 13 years old, and I've made a life for myself that I'm proud of. Like distancing myself. Yeah. Hey, from I'm not going to kill you. <laughs> right, for sure. For sure. And I didn't hear from her for three days. So I, I, in the meantime, I sent her a private message on Twitter and said, I did not mean to bring up these very difficult family stuff for you. I will go and delete those tweets if you want me to. I was really sincere when I said I wanted to read your book. I love reading memoir, and but I'll do whatever you want. I for sure did not intend to cause you grief or harm or bring up the past in any way. So like three days later, she messages me back, and she's like, hey, cousin. And in the meantime, she has researched me and checked me out. And you know how Facebook is where, especially back in the day, they wanted you to connect with every single person you'd ever breathed yeah. the same air as. <laughs> yeah. you know, you're they somehow figure out who you went to kindergarten with, you know, and they're like, here, suggested match. I'll tell you something crazy, not to derail, but I was in Estonia and <laughs> this, this is the creepiest Facebook story ever. I mean, I was in, <laughs> I was in Estonia uh, in Tallinn, you know, which is a little town. And uh, I'm addicted to sugar, but specifically addicted to ice cream. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I'm doing what any mature businessman like myself does and walking to the market to find an ice cream bar. So I walk into the market and uh, there is a woman in there and I'm not flirting with this woman. I'm just asking her like, hey, what's the good ice cream? You know, because it's like, I don't know any of these labels, right? Mm -hmm. And so I talk with her um, and maybe she's getting ice cream too. I don't know. But we walk out of the store together and we walk for maybe five minutes talking to each other. Uh, and then I just continue on to my Airbnb and she continues on her way. I get home 
I get on Facebook, people you might know, there's her face. Oh my gosh, that is creepy. So yeah, Facebook's real good at yes. <laughs> the people you might know feature. <laughs> so she's on Facebook checking me out. And so you would think that Joel with his 40-something kids and my dad with his 50-something kids, that somehow a connection would have been made. Not one. We have one mutual friend, and it's somebody that wasn't a son or a daughter of either of these two men. And so she asked that mutual friend, also an author that has told her story about polygamy, you know, uh, she says, is Anna okay? You know, and she's like, oh yeah, she's very sweet. You'll love her. Okay. So then we start chatting on Twitter in this private message. And she says, are you sure that you want to promote a book that you haven't read? Because she's probably thinking, I've said stuff about your dad. In my head, it's like, I don't care what you say about yeah. my dad. <laughs> like, That's your story and you're entitled to it. You can say whatever you want. And he sucks. And yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, he was a bad person. I'm like, yes, I'm, I'm all in. But I, and she goes, I'll, I'll mail you a copy of the book so that you can then decide. I was like, oh, I get a book. Yay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Mission accomplished. Bye. <laughs> I won the launch team. You know? So she mails me a copy and then I replied to her and I said, listen, um, I'm already all in. The answer is yes. And if you survive a cult, you live to tell about it and you write a book, I'm going to help you. I'm going to be that I'm, I'm there. I mean, I'm in. And I said, plus your family. So yes, the answer is yes. But she goes, Here, I'll, I'll mail you the book and then you can decide. So I, she, I get the book in the mail and we had already made an appointment to talk on the phone. So Joel's children and Irvel's child is going to talk on the phone. And the book comes in the mail the night before. I get off work at nine, read until two o'clock in the morning, wake up at five, big old pot of coffee, start reading again, finish reading at like 9.57 and our call is at 10. So I've finished reading her book and we talk on the phone for hours um, about her experiences and my experiences, the whole thing. It's just cr crazy. Like how in the world did this happen? So at the end of that call, I said to her, okay, so can we get back to the like original question? do you already have a launch team? And she says to me, what's a launch team? <laughs> and I'm like, I'm your girl. Yeah. I got this. We'll, I'll help you launch this book. I know how to do it. I've done it for Jen Hatmaker. We can just get together people that want to read it. And, and then, so we did. I had like 250 people from that group join this one in the 4,500 launches. And we launched Ruth's book, and it became an instant New York Times bestseller. What? Yes. And while I'm in the middle of launching Ruth's book, like we're in the throes of it, and um, there's I'm working my full time job. I have five kids. I'm doing all this <laughs> yeah. other stuff. It's so it's such a crazy time. And while I'm in the middle of that, I get a call from. Jen's husband's agent saying, the husband has a book contract. Would you launch that book? We want the 4,500 to launch that book. Like, I'm like, yes, of course we'll do that. And then while at the same time, I get another call and another email from another author, another agent 
that represents another person. And they were like, Maria Goff has a book contract. And Bob Goff is already a New York Times bestselling author. <laughs> yeah. I love Bob Goff. I've read it's his books. Yeah. He's the best. Maria Goff has a book contract. Would you be interested in leading that launch team when it's time? We love what you did for Jen. Like everybody, know, everybody knows what I did for Jen. And I'm not like, what did I do? Yeah. <laughs> like, how did this work? So I was like, yes, of course I love Bob. I love Have you met Bob? I've met him now. Yeah. I, led his, I led Maria Goff's launch team. And then I launched... Bob Goff's everybody always. Okay. I was. So, so I'm like in the throes of launching Ruth's book. And then my agent calls me and says, there's a publisher that would like to talk to you all at the same time. I don't even have time to be like extremely excited about the fact that a publisher wants to talk to me. Yeah. And of course, you know, they, they talked and then in January we talked again and they offered me a contract and it was for eight hundred million dollars. For eight hundred thousand, yeah, no, that was not how it went down. And that's how you became a billionaire. This is yes. So. Long yeah. story okay. short, you know, I've so lived you, happily you, ever you after. You were patient, yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, I just um, there's now, there's now a brag. Like, what are some of the books you've launched? Oh my gosh! So three or four of Jen's now that are all New York Times bestsellers. I launched um, Gary Sinise's book, Grateful American, New York Times bestseller. Uh, Bob Goff's Everybody Always, New York Times bestseller. Oh, I had the pre-order on all of that. Um, but see? I'm just a big Bob Goff fan. See? And then there's an author named Rachel Hollis. Before she was famous, <laughs> she had a book called Girl, Wash Your Face. That was her first, like. Oh, yeah, yeah. I've okay. seen that all over. So before she was famous, she had like 65,000 followers on Instagram. I, the publisher, her publisher said, would you want to launch this book? And I was like, Sure. Like, whatever. Like, yes, I'm now charging money for this. You yeah. know, I'm charging money now for doing this work that is of like, course. <laughs> it's my side hustle. But I also have a hustle at the same time, a full time <laughs> yeah. job. And yeah. I'm doing this side hustle. And I and launched, it's working like your people are going New York Times bestseller. Yes. And I launched Rachel Hollis's book and it doesn't come out immediately on the New York Times bestseller list. But through some things that happened and I just coached her a little bit like here's how social media works so if you'll do this we can like some some things happened that were very negative for a book and I coached her through it and told her do this do this do this and then she did and then book sales started happening again and I was just responding to this negative thing that happened and I said this is how we can make lemonade out of lemons go and do this so she did it and book sales started happening and she did it some more and more book sales. And it became like six weeks out. It hit the New York times bestseller list her first time. She had been an author several times before. Yeah. And then she wrote another book and I launched that one, another book, New York times bestseller. And then her husband now, got a book contract. I launched that one. Will you <laughs> put like, something, will you <laughs> assemble the Facebook group for it? Is the author involved in it at all? Generally? Yes. Okay. So I joined Scott Harrison's launch team okay. for his book, you know, Charity Water founder, his okay. book. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it debuted at New York Times bestseller. But also when you have essentially 300 of the richest people on earth that invest in your charity. Yeah. Like I'm not, you know, it wasn't surprised. But my issue with being in that group, and there's only like 200 people. Like mm -hmm. I, I was like, I felt awesome. Like, oh, I'm in this yeah. group. I'm going to help. They gave us like, here's the content to share. Here's all this. But it was never from him. Yeah. It was like he was never, ever involved. And. Love Charity Water. Love Scott Harrison. I'm right. not, you know. Different people do it different ways. And there's lots of different ways to launch a book. And people, lots of different people lead launch teams differently. What what I did, when I didn't realize I was doing it, 
was I created a different way to launch a book. Like it had never been done before. And what I realized in hindsight was if I had been, if I'd been one of the 500 that got picked to launch Jen's book, I would have gone into that Facebook group, quietly observed and made notes like this is how a launch team works and this is what you do. And it would have been exactly what you're talking about. Here's some mm-hmm. graphics. Here's the book. But Go you have the it. benefit of just finding it out for yourself. I went rogue. I just did what came natural to me, what was intuitive to me, and used social media. I wasn't even know. I didn't even know what an algorithm was, but intuitively, I knew what to do to get posts seen and what to do and how to do it and <laughs> yeah, how, it's, to, how to direct people's efforts. So I own an agency, and uh, a lot of times. People say like, oh, how do you, um, you know, how much work have you done in this industry? And I say, well, the less we've done, the better our product's going to be because we don't have 800 websites we've done in the exact same industry. So it's, you know, it's really hard to like, if it's first time in the industry, it's your first time. Like if we know nothing, we're able to go in there as outside consultants, take all our knowledge and go, this is what we would do. Mm-hmm. But when you get an industry expert, it's like all they do is create cookie cutters. Right. Uh, and so that huge benefit that often people think is like a negative. Mm-hmm. So I just took everything that I knew and that was intuitive for me. Like I found Facebook in 2009 and it was like the sky parted and the angels sing the (laughs) hallelujah chorus, you know, in that, in the movie Die Hard, when they finally crack open the safe and and the the doors (laughs) open and the hallelujah chorus is playing. That's how it sounded in my head when I found Facebook. Like I love social media. And so it was a very natural fit for me to just figure it out. Like even in the early days, 2009, 10, 11, people on Facebook would call me the Facebook queen. Anytime it, Facebook changed anything, I would figure it out and tell everybody how to f- set their settings to make it go back to the way it was, you know? <laughs> and I was just always on the phone with people helping them learn how to use Facebook and <laughs> on the phone with somebody's grandma, like, okay, now click here yeah. and now do this <laughs> and now do that. So. And like just... It was like a natural fit yeah. I because of my personality, everything. And then I did this side hustle of launching books for other people until the end of 2016. And, and then I, I was working two full-time jobs and writing a book. So if anybody listening wants to write a book and they think I don't have time to write a book, I'm telling you, you do. Yeah. <laughs> I was working two full-time jobs and writing my book. Because I had a contract and I had yeah. to meet the deadline. You know? So at the end of 2016, I resigned from my 17-year career launching aircraft and began being becoming self-employed, launching books. And so you launched your book. How does it go? It went great. I mean, it's not a New York Times bestseller, um, which is fine. Yeah. I would probably have a really big head if <laughs> I had had you that. still got book two coming up, though. <laughs> yeah. What's book two about? Um, the last few chapters of my book, um, which you'll get to, um, I tell my healing journey. Because when I was writing the book and imagining the book and talking to the publisher about it, my in my mind it was, I'll end the book when I got married to my husband the first time. Because we, were, we got married and divorced twice. So... <laughs> Anyway, 
The first time I married him, I thought, that's the place to end the book because I'm in a monogamous marriage, you know? Yeah. So that seemed like a really tidy place to end it. Well, after being interviewed by this publisher many times for hours, like they wanted to know what's, what's this girl's story, they were like, no, we don't want you to end it there. We need, you're, the reader's going to want to know, how did you get from where you were when you got married to where you are now, where you can tell this story and not be re-traumatized by it? And so I did the last few chapters of my book as my healing journey. And when you hear it and people read it, it's like, yes, it's moving pretty quickly. And so I don't really feel like I did my readers a, a good service by sharing something that took me decades in just a few chapters that they can read in a few minutes. It almost gives the false impression that healing is quick because they read it so quick. Yeah. And so my next book is going to be a deep dive into that. Into your healing journey or just into healing? Healing in general, but my journey for sure. But specifically, how do you um, have a relationship with God, with your with God the Father, that's real, that's experiential, that's personal, when you never had a dad? And that's my reality today, is my relationship with Father God is real, it's experiential, it's personal, it's deeply personal. And... And he never had that example. And I never had that growing up. And they talk about in Christian circles and stuff that whatever your relationship with your earthly father is, is kind of going to mirror your relationship with God. And I've been able to overcome that. Which is rare. It's rare. <laughs> and, and I feel like there's a epidemic of fatherlessness, not just fathers that are absent completely, but even emotionally absent or fathers that are abusive that give the wrong impression and that leave you in a place of, of pain and suffering, making it more difficult to connect to God as a father. Yeah. So that's book two. And so right now your full-time job is managing book campaigns mm-hmm. that's and what the I social do. media around that. Yes. Okay. Got it. Yeah. I, but I also do coaching okay. for for people that want to write a book, I offer c- coaching service and you know whatever you, wherever you are in the process just thinking about it or you've already written this much, you know, wherever you are in the process, I can help you with your next steps along. Got and it. so I do that and I also help people who are building a platform that who need to grow their social media following because you have to have a platform <laughs> to get a book contract. Yeah. So I do that. It's kind of like um a, like a train track. Yeah, you have so to I, be doing both. I saw your social media, like, you know, like social media consultant. I was like, oh, another one. Yeah, right. And then I went to your Facebook and saw that you get like 400 likes and 150 <laughs> comments on every single post. And I was like, all right, I'm wrong. I'm wrong. You know, like, <laughs> I'm wrong. I, you know, I judged too quickly. Like, I was like, no, what does she know? She doesn't know a social media. Because you know, it's like, you just like, everybody throws around that term. And yeah. so it's like, but uh, I can imagine, like, I mean, your engagement was, was insane. And I was like, okay, cool. I'm, I'm clearly wrong. Have you been to my TikTok um, yet? No. <laughs> TikTok is where I've really taken off. Sweet. I'll, I'll check it out. I have like 30,000 followers on TikTok. 
TikTok. <laughs> Did you have one that just got like 50 million views? Did you have one that just went crazy? I have one that has almost 500,000 views. <laughs> anyway, thank you, Anna, for your story. I know this was long and hopefully the lights weren't too bright and it's comfortable in here. <laughs> and I really appreciate you sharing and going deep and, and telling the full thing. And yeah, I... You know, it's cool. We're neighbors. I just moved to Dallas. So this is kind of my way to like, how do I meet people in Dallas? And this is, well, uh, this it's is a pleasure to meet you and welcome to Dallas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Big. Nobody's going to see it. All right. Sweet. This is it. Okay, cool. And, and that's a wrap. What time is it even? <laughs> wow. Ah. <sighs>